Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. As always, your host, C3, alongside with Todd and Habilius, E Cannon on Beats. This is Intentional Dangerfield. We got a special edition this evening. We have Mr. Art Wilson, a national historian, curator of the Underground Railroad, predominantly coming through Jacksonville, Illinois. It was a special podcast. We had to do this intro a little different this time because there was a lot of information and we just got right into the conversation. Again, this is going to be one of those special ones. So enjoy. segregation was so systematic that you didn't even realize it. Yeah. The reason being is because um, when I went to high school, I, I had, I was in the same area all four years, shared the same locker with the same guy and everybody in that, that hallway was black. Then the hallway turned and there was nobody. Most of the whites were up, ten, up upstairs, maybe about three blacks were up there, but they were closer to being like white people. And they, we had an overflow of blacks. So they'd run numbers upstairs and then the guys that they call, like, uh, you know, the, the guys that were like farmers and stuff, they wore their T-shirts and cigarettes up in here back in, still back in that day. But the reason I said I didn't realize it was because uh, when we had classes, we went to classes with white people like everybody else. But when we were free on free time to, to gather, like in the mornings, during lunch hour, we were all in the same era. We used to call that hallway boot hall because it was just black people in it. So I got things. So I, I went back to um, my brother who graduated like four years before me and asked him where his locker was and where he was he, he was at, same spot. I went back 10 years to my sister who's older than me, same spot. I, no matter how far I went back, all the blacks were in that same area. Mm-hmm. And so I asked a lady by the name of Phyllis Hamilton. She's now the chief justice uh, over the Northern District of California, appointed by Bill Clinton. She's originally from Jackson, but I did an interview with her about what it was like growing up. She goes, well, you know why it was like that? She says, Jacksonville didn't have a black high school, so they had to send us to the white high school. But she said they kept us separate from everybody else when it came to where you have time to talk and meet and, and entertain and joke around because they didn't want us being mixed up with mixed the up, others. Yeah. But in classroom time, they had to put us in there. And all she said, the only time, the only ones that really got to break through the segregation were the ones that played football, or the girls that played volleyball or things like that, because you were on a team with those white guys. So you built camaraderie, you built friendships, and those players were invited to the richer white areas of town to, to, in their homes and stuff, you know. But the rest of us were kind of like, you know, just left out. So Okay. So so tell us how it was growing up. You said you grew up in Jacksonville, Jacksonville Illinois. Mm-hmm. What year was that, and how was that growing up? Uh, I was born in 57, um, and I graduated in high school in uh, 1975. Uh, growing up was probably pretty much like any kid, black kid growing up, you know. You had black friends. I, I grew up in an area of Jacksonville um, where we had blacks that lived in an area where Washington School was. Rich kids, poor white kids, poor black kids, some middle-class black kids all went to the same school. So in that point, we got to be around each other and know each other and, and play, but pretty much – we all stayed in our same neighborhoods. The rich white kids went back out to the west end of town, and we were in an area that we were at. But as I got older, I moved to what was called the black side of town. When I was about fourth grade, we moved over there. And it was almost like a culture shock because the kids who I grew up around, you hardly ever fought 
you hardly ever did anything. You know, you played and, and everybody got along. I went over there and uh, it was like a whole different change because most of the people over there were black. There were a few whites, but most of them were black. And they were living and their thing was totally different from mine, you know. And uh, I remember that's where I learned to fight was over there. I'd get chased home from school and stuff like that. And, you, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I'd run home and my brother, older brother said, well, what are you running for? And I go, well, they're chasing me every day. He goes, you, don't let me catch you. Running again. Yeah. So I had to stand my ground and that's all it took. I stood my ground. I wasn't chased anymore. We all became friends. Um, but as far as being a black kid uh, growing up, you didn't really feel the effects of what my parents, my mom and dad and everybody else had went through yeah. because I came in under their pillars you know, they went through everything to raise things up for me to go under and through, and that's mm-hmm. what happened. So all the way up to, like, seventh grade, there really wasn't a whole lot of stuff. You'd walk through town, and whites from other towns would say certain things. I don't know what all you can say on this. Yeah, thing, you but, can say okay. whatever you like well, to them. Whites would ride by in their vehicles and, hey, nigger, and da-da-da, but they wouldn't stop. You know, but they'd go by and say things, and every once in a while you see a rebel flag on a vehicle go by and stuff Some like that. Reminders. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And uh, but as far as a, a kid, uh, you didn't feel a lot of it because during those times, blacks were starting to be like in sports where I came from and things like that. We were starting to stand out because uh, in the '60s, early '60s, when blacks started playing football, they used us as like linemen and other mm. other things. No matter how fast we were, bull, yeah. And then I, we had a coach named Al Rosenberger, and this was before I was even in high school. This is before I was, in some cases, I was even born. Uh, Al Rosenberger, uh, he said, he told me, he said, you know, every time we'd have drills, all the black kids would be beating the white kids. The ones that we had in our backfield would get smoked by these black kids. So we said, we started training them in those positions. You know, we never let them play it, but we let them train in that position. And then they said one day, you know, they said one year, said, okay, we're going to do this. And he said that, you know, everything went as normal. He said, but when the black kids got into the backfield position, he said the crowd looked at them. They thought they were going to get lynched because, <laughs> yeah. you know, they were mad. They yeah. were mad at these black kids. But when that ball snapped, they ran a touchdown. That's all it took. Yep. You know, and they, they stayed in those uh, those positions and stuff like that. But that's the kind of racism you ran into. And then when they would go out of town to play football against these other white teams and stuff like that, and they would stop at a place to go eat, the black kids when the first time he went there, they wouldn't serve him. So the black kids got back on the, the bus. And then the coaches start noticing that the white kids are bringing the black kids food on the bus. And he said, look, I know you ain't that lazy. Go get your own food. Oh, and wow. the white, white kids said, coach, they won't, they won't serve him. He goes, what? Yeah. He said, they won't, they won't give them. They won't sell them food. They don't want them in there. And so the coach went in there and asked us, no, they're not going to come in here and eat and they're not going to serve them. So, and from that point on, they stopped going to these places to eat. Everybody brought a sack lunch. So, there was, as far as what the coaches that we came up under and stuff like that, that I ended up coming up under, they had already faced what they didn't even know what was going on. Had been going on for a long time, but it wasn't until it got addressed in that way that they realized, oh, man, these these people aren't this and that. And even though they had their own prejudice, it wasn't so strong that this didn't bother them, uh-huh. you know? Mm-hmm. And um, things just continued to change in that aspect. But when, like I said, when I got in high school, um, it wasn't until when I got out, when I came back out of Marine Corps when I was 35 and started doing all this research, that I discovered that even though I was going to a high school where I was allowed to be in classes with other whites, I was still segregated when it came to when the time came when I could actually talk to them, get to know them, become good friends. 
I had been friends with the ones I went to grade school with, but now they're on a floor above me. Uh-huh. So whatever kind of, you know, gathering we got as friends kind of broke off in those years because you're not, you're not around them. Right. And when lunch hour is there, you're around each other. And then when lunch hour is over, you're in the classroom and, you, you know, you're not striking up conversations and stuff at that time. You're, you're being taught. And then when school is out, everybody goes in their own way. It's and ready for the workforce. Yeah. Yeah. And it just went. I mean, I I dated that way back about 30 years prior to me going was still the same way. You know, basically since that school was uh, created for that, you know. So, but uh, the the strange thing about Jacksonville, what got me started in all this underground rural activity, when I got a Marine Corps, my mom had me clean out her basement. And uh, in a room that's like a big walk-in closet, I saw a board that was loose. So I pulled it away and found a bunch of stuff in it. Well, one thing I found of interest in it was a diploma was that was so big, you know, and it had the picture of the school and the name of the school, even had the signatures of the superintendent and principals on it. And it was called Washington High School. So I went up to the library. I researched Washington High School. I found out Washington High School was in Jacksonville back in the 1800s. And it was um, it was the first free public high school in the state of Illinois. I said, oh, man, this is a significant find. So I yeah. mm-hmm. uh, went told the Journal Courier newspaper that came down and interviewed me about it. And took a picture of me with it. And I said, well, I want to find out. This guy's name was John H. John H. Burnett, graduate Latin. All right. So I said, I want to find out what he was about. So I thought, well, in 75, when I graduated, they had our pictures in the newspaper. All right. So I thought maybe in 1877, they did the same thing, even though the papers didn't come out that quick. So I went up to the, the thing again. I researched 1877. Didn't find nothing in there about graduating students. And no pictures anyway. But the microfilm went up to 1879. So I was looking through it, and lo and behold, that guy whose diploma I found, his obituary was in 1878. So you got a picture. Yeah. yeah. Well, I didn't, no, I didn't get a picture. Okay. But I got his obituary. Same guy on the diploma, how he died. It talked about he graduated from Washington High School. He became a teacher, uh, secured teaching job in St. Louis. He got accidentally shot when a guard unit who had been firing their weapons on the range came back and went through manual arms. A crowd had formed to watch him do this. And when he pulled the trigger, it wasn't supposed to be around in it, but it was striking, killing him. Then the more interesting I found out, this, this gentleman that graduated was black. He was the first black man to graduate from the first free public high school in the state of Illinois. So my curiosity said, how's a black guy graduating from all-white high school in the 1870s when Reconstruction, you know, from Civil War was still kind of going on in a lot of places? And Jacksonville was predominantly a white town other than this little area they had of blacks that was called Africa and then later called Colored. Jim Crow hadn't settled in. Yeah, yeah, hadn't settled in yet. So, um, But Jacksonville was surrounded by places that had the Klan. Hmm. And they did a lot of a lot of white people from smaller towns did a lot of business in Jacksonville because Jacksonville was a bigger town, you know, concerning all them. So and like I said, it was Southern sympathized because you had Kentuckians that came there. But here's this kid graduating from this school that was predominantly all white in 1877. And they had a colored school at one point in time back before that area. So I was wondering if he did this, what, what else went on? So I talked to my mom about some things and stuff like that. And she said, well, there was always a story about the Underground Railroad here. And she pointed out a few places that supposedly were. So I started going up to the library in my free time. I just got a Marine Corps, wasn't employed, was drawing my unemployment. And I found myself staying in that library eight hours every day. And as I went through, I started finding stuff on the Underground Railroad. And then I got a breakthrough in, in this um, box that nobody had been in in 50 years, they told me. I found a manuscript that was written by a girl 
who used to be, whose father was an abolitionist, and she used to listen through the door to her, to her talking to this black gentleman about moving these slaves. And she talked how her father then would tell them to move, you know, stay away from the door and get away. But she kept listening, so she found out what was going on. And then when the Civil War started, abolitionists pretty much stopped because with the Civil War going on, the Underground Railroad quickly came to an end because there's no reason to start sneaking slaves through because as the slaves went, as the Union made it further through the South, slaves were just leaving the plantations thinking they were being liberated, liberated. all right? Yeah. So there was no sense in the Underground Railroad. But this girl, when it when the Civil War ended, she she interviewed the last seven abolitionists that were still alive in Jacksonville. And they gave their stories just like if you picked up a book and started reading. You know, we took the horse and the, and the slave on the back, and we went through Pleasant Plains on over to Springfield and dropped them off the Liberty Table. I mean, this whole thing was just like that. And the other key thing, it mentioned the name of abolitionists, mm-hmm. but it also mentioned where they lived. So now I started going around, and boom, there was a house, just like they described it in the in the story. And from there, things just kept on being documented and and going and just. So you was actually able to place where you're reading about, and you're actually able to go there and yeah. see it with your own yeah. eyes. Stand right how, in there. How did that feel? It, it felt amazing. It, it felt like I had just walked through a time portal, you know. Because here I am standing in front of one house, reading what they did here, and here's the house. You know, we hit him. We hit him in the garret of the house, with like the attic. You know, of the of the house. And you look there, and there's the attic of the house. And you get all the people asking, "Can you go inside after you explain to who you are?" And most of them were pretty excited to find this information out. Oh, well, come on in, and they'd point this and point things they they always wondered about. Huh. And mm-hmm. uh, then I found the one that um, I formed a committee, which is Woodlawn Farm, and ended up purchasing. Um, the gentleman who owned it, I, I discovered a house five years before I ended up purchasing it. Um, and he was never really going to sell it, but he got sick. And so he let me know three weeks before uh, he was going to put it on the market. So that's all the time I had to try to find money. So I raised a, I formed a committee called the Underground Rural Committee. And we went to quick work, trying to raise money. Three months time, we raised $33,000 and put that down as a down payment on his house and was able to secure it. And buy it, and then the owner gave us ten thousand dollars back of the money that we bought it to help us get started, and an additional five acres to give us ten acres, and that's the one we own. And the other nine, the other uh, eight are uh, are ones I found along the way. Right now, we got four sites on the national park historic places uh, in the United States uh, National Park Services, and I got two exhibits uh, in the National Underground Railroad Center in Cincinnati, Ohio, and they deal with the churches, two churches, a black church and the abolitionist white church that was there. So, that's huge. Where, where does, how far does the Underground Railroad stretch? Uh, well, Jacksonville had had at least three lines that came through it. You know, in, in any kind of thing, they talk about intersections, so it's usually four. So we had three of the main lines on the Underground Railroad where slaves came from anywhere in the United States, whether they escaped in the Florida area, Texas area, or um, – uh, down south, Alabama, Mississippi, standards like that, because those lines, no matter where they were started out at, if, if they got cut off going one route, they'd end up picking up on the line that brought us through where we are. Because, you know, we were uh, we were bordered by southern states and stuff like that, and to have them come in here, uh, and a lot of times they were brought by abolitionists. Sometimes they would just escape, like at the St. Louis auctions. If they just escaped down there, then they went just however they were dressed. And I've got plenty of stories of, like, one particular time, uh, three women were found in a corn crib hiding inside of it. 
and one of the black uh, free blacks went there to try to get him to come out, you know, but they're scared they wouldn't come out for him. So he went and got Jonathan Turner, who was a white professor at my college, and he convinced them to come out, and then he took them to another place to uh, have them uh, uh, stay there until they decided where to move them. But um, as far as the, the goal was to get from wherever they were slaves at to Canada. But I also found out a lot of times, like in my case, in the cases in Jacksonville, a lot of slaves who were on their way to Canada, when they found places like Mr. Huffberger's place, who who already had free blacks working for him, living there in cabins on his property, they're like, man, can I stay here? Right. You know? And in the thing, you can see Mr. Huffberger's numbers of blacks in the census start growing. And it ain't because of the blacks in Africa coming out to work on his farm, you know, because most of them worked in town. It's because these slaves were most likely staying on instead of moving on. So. Wow. It's just crazy that uh, that a place like, because just growing up here in Springfield, you would never even think that anything about Jacksonville as far as like history mm-hmm. and anything, because we're so with the Lincoln right. stuff here. So yeah, it's true. you know, yeah. so it's for us, it's like that is what mid. Illinois mm-hmm. is all about. Yeah. And and most people feel about it because, you know, Lincoln always took precedence over everything. Mm-hmm. Nobody was really, people were documenting the Underground Railroad and you see a book come out, but nobody was really publicizing it in a way that it was on TV. Like I've been on Illinois Stories five times as a PBS station. Yeah. Uh, they've been out there five times from when we first got established uh, and they were just out there about two weeks ago. And there's a show right now on where he's, he goes to, actually goes to the Congregational Church. And uh, he talks about the abolitionists being there. And he talks about the museum, the museum that I'm putting in upstairs now and stuff like that, too. But uh, when I started doing this, I had no idea that the research I was doing was going to blow over like it did. I had no college education and I knew nothing about putting together a, a committee and then it blossoming and rolling coasting away like it did. It was just uh, uh, crazy how this stuff came together so fast. But. Uh, and so it was kind of hard to keep up with at first because I wrote, I worked at the prison, but I also had my own column in Jacksonville. So I wrote for the newspaper there and I was just sharing whatever I found about the underground world. I was sharing in my column for people to read. Mm-hmm. Next thing I know, I get a call from the tourism bureau of Jacksonville saying the Ursula Academy, which was a school over Springfield, mm-hmm. wanted to go on a tour of some of these houses. I go, oh, nice. well, there ain't no tour. They go, well, <laughs> well, aren't they really interested? They want to see these houses that you have discovered. So I got a hold of the three of the owners. They said, yeah, we'll, we'll let them come in. So that was the first tour I gave, and it just continued. People kept letting their house. And in the General Grierson uh, days, which is still were reenactment, they go, well, all right, you know, we would like to include your houses in with what we're doing just to make it a little more interesting. They said, but you probably only have like 150 visitors, so you handle it yourself. We're too busy out here. And I said, okay. So I was a member of the JCs. So I got a couple of JCs. <laughs> you know I got a couple of my JC friends, taught them the history of the house that they were going to be at. And my daughter, who was nine at the time, she went with me everywhere, knew much history as I did from being there. So she ran one of the houses with my little younger son. And uh, so we the, the tours were supposed to start at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We had to start them at 1 o'clock because the lines were getting so long. In two wow. and a half hours' time, we put over 1,300 people through these three houses. Oh my. And it just went crazy wow. after that. Then of course I uh, started giving them, we had people who were handicapped. So they said, Art, right, well, each year we'll do this. We'll have you go to only college at the cyber theater and we'll have you do a presentation there. And you can get slides of the houses and show the slides for the people 
who can't get on these, you know, and go see these places. Uh, for the first four years, I had no less than 800 people just sitting in the audience, you know, wanting to talk. And then when the buses were always filled and then three houses uh, in, the, in the years 2002, three houses came up for sale that I discovered. Uh, the General Grierson's house, which was an underground rural site before Grierson had it. It was owned by the name of a gentleman by the name of Grierson Berry. And he kept the slave girl I was telling you about earlier. He hid her out there at his place for quite a while. And then uh, there was a clay house that I told you the guy came here and his wife, and they kept the slave children there, which that girl was the one that kept at the Grierson Berry house. And then there was Woodlawn Farm, the one I actually we actually purchased and owned. Uh-huh. That that suited as the best one of the three, and um, they ended up purchasing that and stuff like that, as I told you on that. But, yeah, it just um, everything blew up, and as things were going, then I got contacted by the Department of Transportation. They said, hey, we saw you in Illinois Stories. And we think we can help you out. We got grasses that would have been growing back in those times. We'll give uh, you the free seed. We'll keep the front of the interstate clear so people can see your house. And we want to come out there and go on a tour. So we we set a dinner up for them. And uh, the guy underneath the director and some of the other higher-uppers came out there and ate. And they started talking to us, well, we can help you get this grant. We can help you get this grant. And then um, Department of um, DECA, Department of Economic Commerce came down. They heard about it. Yep. And uh, they're the ones that ended up getting grants for us. So, like, in the first six years, I got like over five hundred thousand dollars in grants wow. from the from the state to do stuff. Of course, they end up taking like two hundred fifty of it back because they sent out like four archaeologists and three or so architects that had to go through the house and make sure what parts of it were original, what mm-hmm. parts were weren't, and they did site digs all over the place. But I mean, it was it was a good start for something that. Uh, you know, but it, it then again, it made a lot of the whites in Jacksonville higher uppers mad because I got a, I needed a bridge. I'm, it was funny because I moved in out there. I, I I got to live out there the first three years. They said, "Well, you are, you did all this. You want to live in there?" I said, "Of course, I'm going to live in there." So I did. <laughs> I was out there about one month, and the county came out and put a sign on the bridge that said the weight limit has changed. So now no buses, school buses, or charter buses. Can come across here. <laughs> and I go, man. I said, so wow. what am I supposed to do? I said, and it's, if you ever go out there, it's a long walk from where you turn onto our property all the way up to the, to the thing. But, uh, of course, the museum was helping us out. We didn't even know. They, they, we knew they knew about us, but we didn't know they were going to start sending us people. So we were getting buses showing up when I was at work. And the tourism bureau was like, Art, we got a bus that came in town that wants to go see the house. I go, I'm at work. We're not, we're not open for tours yet. Uh-huh. And so, and then, of course, then the bridge. So every day I got off work about 3 o'clock. I think it was 3 o'clock was the time we got off. In my uniform, I fly over to Springfield, found out who the senators were, where they were at. Hi, my name is Art Wilson. Give them my card. Talk to them. They kind of set up a meeting. The secretary set up a meeting. Then I'd go around again. And it got to be where I, I got to know a lot of them and talk to them. And uh, they introduced me to Emil Jones, who was the Senate mm-hmm. president. Mm-hmm. He said, well, young man, he said, we're going we're gonna to see what we can do for you. So they end up putting money in the governor's budget and, and funneled it through the Historian Pres- History Elder Preservation Society right. or whatever. And funneled to me and gave me a check for seventy five thousand. Then I got members of people in Jacksonville to give me seventy five thousand because this bridge was going to cost one hundred fifty thousand dollars a fix. And people in town, the higher uppers, and didn't like me doing this. You know, having this thing, they thought. I guess they thought they put it to an end by closing that bridge. Well, I got that bridge fixed. So what happened next? How did Art get a bridge 
fixed. Well, we have bridges in town that people cross every day and we can't get the money for it, but he's got a bridge that only goes to that place and it costs $150,000. Well, I had both mayors from Jacksonville, uh, Senator Emil Jones, president, and all these other dignitaries were on the, the bridge with the picture stuff, but it, it made a lot of people mad. Oh, and, I'm sure it did. Yeah. <laughs> sure it, did. It, sounds, yeah. it sounds exactly yeah. like it did. Then they gave me free signage for it, you know. Uh, their sign just said, you know, historic underground rural site. And nice. they gave me the signage, which should have cost money. And the city got mad because they couldn't get signage for some of their areas out on the interstate. But the, the Department of Transportation told them, say, well, your sites are too far from the highway. So yeah. you're going to move the sites this way. We'll do that. You know, it was so it was it was it was trouble, though. I mean, <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't easy. Yeah. Well, you touched on something a little earlier mm-hmm. about slave auctions in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And when you first got down here, we kind of went back and forth with the conversation. I want to open it up for the listeners to hear. Okay. Well, um, we were talking about uh, the, we're talking about the Underground Railroad, mm-hmm. and I know of a church that is right across the Mississippi, which is in a place called Rocky Fork, which is in Godfrey, Illinois, which is in the Alton area. Mm-hmm. Now, um, uh, you were talking about slave auctions in St. Louis, correct? Now, if you are from the area, or if you're not from the area, um, right across that bridge from St. Louis is Alton. Mm-hmm. So this church being in that Alton area, um, I want to understand, I was doing some research earlier. Um, the area was pretty hot in 1860s, 1816, as far as slaves escaping and coming over to the community mm-hmm. from slave state to free state. Mm-hmm. Now, my mother pastored a church in the early nineties that was, I want to say established in, um, 1830s and it was a stop on the underground railroad it's called new bethel ame church rocky fork um illinois but when she pastored it as we got there we saw there was a story that the the church had been burned down uh, two attempts to burn it down in 1988 Mm -hmm. and this was in april then the second attempt was in october and by july there had been four uh cross burnings it had also been uh, vandalized with um, swastikas and other racial uh, tones. So this town, if you could imagine, is a plot of land that holds a church and holds housing and burial plots in this one little area. And the town is about a population of about a thousand, which is usually, which is mostly white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So you can understand the tension and whatnot there. So I just want to know what you think about, you know, that area and that being so close, you know, and that being, like you said, it, it being a hotbed mm-hmm. and then up more uh, north where Jacksonville is, mm-hmm. like you said, a hotbed for the Underground Railroad. So I know they had some kind of connection. So I just want to know what you thought about that. Yeah, I believe they, they had a connection because, like I said, when when the slaves would, would escape from the St. Louis area or however, anywhere out in that area, they'd had to cross over to the river. And at that place would be like a lighthouse to them. You know what I'm saying? It'd be a beacon of a spot to go because if, if whether they came across through the water or hanging on logs or however they crossed, you know, because um, a lot of slaves, when they escaped, they got in the water. They, a lot of them couldn't swim real well. But, you know, usually somebody be get a boat and they try to beat them with oars while they're in the water. So their journey, however far they had to come to get to that point, if they had a place, like I said, that'd be like a lighthouse to them. They would definitely uh, be there. Um, and the fact that the, the church was a black church, 
that close to the point of where they would come across says a whole lot in itself. That was pretty daring to put something like that because you'd have people from the South, just either it was just a black church to come over and, and start trouble or do things. And it, the the cross burnings and stuff that you said happened in the 1980s, mm-hmm. that's happened in the 1980s. You can imagine what that church probably was going through during the time period when slavery was going on and these slaves were coming across. I do believe that a lot of those slaves were probably were um, spirited to Jacksonville, mm-hmm. whether they were helped or given directions or however it came across. Because uh, like St. Louis wasn't just a little auction stop. It was pretty good major auctioning going on there. Right on the Mississippi. Yeah, right on the Mississippi. And so, yeah. And so that was a quick way for them to easy access to get away. But like I said, you're also talking about as a slave was on the auction, a lot of times we in the movies they show them up there with clothes on. Nine times out of ten, they're butt naked. Because just like you buy a car, you walk around it, you inspect the inside, you look at it, see what attracts you, that, that car that meets your needs. They did the same thing with slaves, male and female. They strip them down, and they physically look at everything. They look at their teeth. They look at their mouth. They look at their uh, their ears. Uh, they check them for scars or scratches or anything that, that could reopen up and, and, and cause an infection because the more damage they can find on that slave, the farther they can drive the price down. And stuff like that. So, and as a slave wouldn't open their mouth, they had these things. It was like a, you know, what a protractor looks like. Put the pencil in this part and sharpen the part. Mm-hmm. But this thing that they put it in their mouth and it's got a thing to go straight and chew like this. When they pull this thing back, it opens like this. So it makes their mouth open up or they mm-hmm. get a cut in their mouth, stuff like that. To inspect them. If they were a female, they came up, they felt their breast, they felt their buttocks, they make them open their legs. Just like if they were, if you were cattle buying cattle in the same way they go up, pick up a horse's hoof or whatever, look up underneath it padded in places and stuff like that. That's exactly what it was because the slave was considered an upright walking, talking animal. So they would treat it as just the same. So a lot of these slaves that escaped, some of them would be put over in the stockade that was, you know, nice weather with no clothes on, nothing on, you know, and they got an opportunity to escape. They would escape at that point or before maybe they even got up on the stage and stuff. So um, their, their escape was um, the fact there was a place that close was probably helped save a lot of them's lives just because of the conditions that they had to leave when they left in the first place. I just thought about this, the significance of the the name of the town, Godfrey, Mm -hmm. and it's spelled with a Y, Mm -hmm. G-O-D-F-R-E-Y, but Godfrey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Godfrey. Yeah. Significance is, you know, names, Mm -hmm. Newport, Virginia. It's a Newport. Yeah. 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 And, And believe it or not, a lot of names of places were like beacons to them too. You know, slaves would, would learn and know things, you know, this place is named for this. So like, um, um, let me see if I can give an example here. Um, like the underground rural quilt, the quilt will, will have a symbol on it. That slave will recognize it. Even though he can't read, he can recognize that symbol, whether the symbol might be a, a bear paw or it might be a basket or a star or, or whatever they put on there. They can recognize that. When some of these places were named like Godfrey, we we see it as okay, Godfrey. But when you should really start thinking really hard and put it with those times, Godfrey, yeah. you know, that slave can understand that mm-hmm. that because of the, the the thing about it, when all the old slaves died back, you know, after fifteen hundreds and so on, and old slaves had all died off, and the religion would already had it died off, and people started teaching them about Jesus. Through the Bible, some people would sneak a Bible. Some some uh, owners didn't mind it if they read. Well, they they ain't gonna know anyway. They're dumb. They you know you teach them all about Jesus you want. 
You know, they don't, they're animals in the region. So, but when the slaves started finding out that Jesus Christ's life was like theirs, that spirited them to be able to survive because they saw Jesus got whipped. He got beat. He got caged. He got locked up. All these things that happened to him. But at the end of his life, they saw where he went to a place that was great and he became a new person and these people couldn't follow him. So his life was, gave them a lot to, uh, to live for in their own predicaments and stuff like that. So things that were associated that they used the word God in and stuff like that kind of gave them some recognition of this is the okay place. Plus I'm sure there was other reasons how they knew that too. But like I said, being the fact that place was just so close to the edge there, you know, it was on the front line. So Yeah, it was. What type of things were they doing for like survival food wise and clothing? Were they making clothes or take like what, what was going on? It, uh, it depends on what escape. The slaves escaped from the South, you know, and they knew it was going to be an underground railroad trek. Um, they would put together things they thought they would need and they would hide them in places. Like they may take a shirt and put a bunch of raw potatoes or whatever kind of food that wouldn't perish that would give them energy. And then they, because they were people of the land that planted and that stuff, they learned over years what they could eat and not eat, you know? So as they did the travels, they also knew what they could eat and eat. Because you know what? It wasn't like they could stop and go buy anything. Right. You know, they didn't really have the tools to kill stuff, but they made snares, you know, to kill rabbits and this and that. Um, so they would start out with, uh, hopefully, and like I said, unless they were just going because they know they were going to get sold, and they decided, I'm out of here, you know? They they usually try to leave out with something, and one of the one of the one of the um, things on the um, uh, quilt it have a basket, and that basket says fill your baskets up with enough food to eat, you know, and that meant like dry food, whether it's meat that's been dried out or potatoes and stuff like that uh, for the journey, you know. Along the way, you try to replenish yourself however you can. The clothes you leave with on your back probably aren't going to be the same clothes that you're going to make it at the end. You may end up, depending on where you end up stopping at, sometimes they try to steal something they could, or they'd make their clothing out of stuff. Or if they were able to kill the animal, like a couple of rabbits or something, they would use the rabbit skins to tie around their feet, mm-hmm. you know, to give them some kind of comfort uh, because they didn't, they didn't, there was no way to get nothing. Right. And then uh, if the abolitionists actually helped them, then they had better travels. Because the abolitionists knew places they were going to stop at. They made sure they had supplies with them to help them to get where they needed to go. Pit but stop. Yeah. But the slave that was just took off on his own, he was totally on his own. And you got to remember, when they traveled, it was only at night. They couldn't travel in daytime for being seen. They couldn't be on the roads. And it was so dark to see. And people say, well, you know, they journey. So you, you see a slave going, and you see him in the movies. He's running, and he's going through. And his path is clear. You know what I'm saying? It ain't like that. They would go, if he had, if, if this whole room was bushes for a mile with stickers this big in it and so grown in that you had to push and force your way through it, yeah. that's where they're going. Mm. Because if dogs are chasing them, a dog can't go through that to get to you. A dog can't push through thicker, thicker bushes and stuff like that. So what's a dog going to do? He's going to have to run that whole row till he finds a place he can enter. The guy chasing you on a horse, he can't go through with his horse. And he ain't going to get off and chase you too far through there, if at all. Because, for one, he don't want to get cut up. And that kind of stuff pulls your clothing off of you. It rips you. If you're a black woman and you have long hair and you're going through there, next thing you know, your hair is caught. And you're trying to pull. And you can't get loose. You got these cockerburrows. You got these big stickers. They're sticking in your hair. And so you know how they got free from that? Cut it. 
pull the hair out, not cut them because they don't have, yeah. you know, they usually didn't have a knife. So it's pulling straight out. So that makes your roots bleed. And then a lot of people, visual. yeah, a lot of people you don't see, you don't see in the movies. We knew they were being chased, but what about the bear, the cougar, the wolves, Yeah, all these animals that are Elements. out there. It's just natural to the environment sure. that they got to go through that you don't, you have no idea how many slaves died because of black bear attacks or wolves or coyotes, you know, how many children they lost going through this, uh, taking these kids. You can imagine a woman who maybe she has a dress on. And so she's sticking this little baby she got up in here. But every time she's pushing her way through these things, even though the baby's covered, it's getting tore up. Yeah. Uh, we had a such slave arrived in Jacksonville who went out to Woodlawn Farm. And when they got there, it said that she was in a terrible state. She was bleeding. Her clothes were, were in, you know, tore up and stuff like that. And it just gives you an idea. And then when you put with Springfield's two hours away, it might be a two-month walk or longer just to go from, from St. Louis to here. Yeah. Because you you got to go through all that vegetation. you got to go through that water and creeks if you got to go through that. If it's wintertime, you might not even make it. You know, your your feet ain't like you got socks and boots on and everything's comfortable. And them temperatures back then, you had snow drifts this deep, you know. So I guess that's why Harriet Tubman said a slave had two choices, either to free, be free or die trying to be free. Because most of them knew once they once they started on that trek, wasn't no turning back. You know, it's not for that's the like, faint. No. That's like crossing the sea or like mm-hmm. if you. You're that's on out of bounds. Island, it yeah. is out of bounds. When you yeah. when you're talking, I'm thinking 55 cornfields, mm-hmm. but it's not that. No, yeah, it's not yeah, clear. It's not that. Yeah, it's the movie, not clear. The movie. We see the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we see that swimming mm-hmm. across that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, when you look at that water, you see how turbulent and bad it is. Yeah. Yeah. you know. I mean, and, you, and it ain't like it's 10 feet, no. you know, and there was very few spots where the water was low enough to, to walk across, you know, if at all, uh, and not be seen or caught. So, like I said, um, when you think just how hard it was to go on that journey and you think, you know, today, could you do that? Could you, could you, could you yourself start where a slave started from a plantation and say, okay, I got me some food. I got this clothes on and you can't change anymore until you know when you get to the actual next stop is at. Cause see, they didn't know where the next stop is going to be at. Right. They didn't know, but we know now. So now you got to travel to that next stop, but you got to go the same route they did. Okay. Man's been through some things now. So some things are cleared out, but we're going to put you on a route that says we're going to make it as difficult for you in today's world to get through there as them. And let's see, are you going to give up? Because you're going to, if you choose to give up, it's because you know what you can You can, you you know, you can say I quit. I ain't going through this no more. I I get the point. No, ain't no getting no point. Mm -hmm. The point is, you either go or you die here or you get caught. You know, that was that was the difference. And go back, yeah. And we can't. And and you know, I have nothing against rap music. I listen to my son. He's a rapper. He says stuff. And I even I know the word nigger like anybody else. But what I try to tell a lot of these young kids, and you know, they they change it a little bit. Niger, naga, nigga, whatever you you change it what you want. But as I tell them, I said, you know what? You guys are so removed from your own history, you don't understand how bad that word is. Because now you've taken it, and other comedians have taken it, and this and that. And nothing against them making their money or doing this, because it's all in humor or this or that. But you think it was humorous when that slave was dangling from that rope and people were calling him nigger? Or the man in the 50s that was being hung? Or being burnt on a skid, his hands tied behind his back, and they're lighting a match and throwing him on him, and all the white people are sitting there, yeah, 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 you know, and he's dying or his baby. You think it was you think it was good when when a slave master when he found out that the 
the the male slave escape and he knew he had children. So he goes out there and he gets that three-year-old child and he holds him up above a fire and he starts lowering her down to where her hair starts singeing up. Then he pulls him away and nobody's, you know, nobody's still giving up that. So he puts it down a little further. Next thing you know, the whole hair is on fire. And then sitting here, you see the skin bubbling up on her face. You know, I said, a lot of people died with that name attached to them. The last words they heard before they died, I said, and now we throw it out there like it's, like it's a pleasantry. You know, like I said, I worked in the prison for, you know, 20 years. I'd tell the inmate, you know, and they'd say words like, well, that's my bitch and bitch. I said, I understand what you're saying. I know. I said, and a lot of women, a lot of black women take that as a term of affection. If their man said, yeah, that's my bitch. But I said, you know what? You guys say it so much right now that the guy had a female dog there and his woman there. And he said, come here, bitch. The woman would get up and come and the dog would sit there. Because the dog don't know yeah. nothing about being no bitch. You know yeah. what I'm saying? <laughs> but that's what a bitch is, a female dog. Right. You know, so... That that bothers me, but I understand the point behind it, way they use it in the music and in humor. But it wasn't meant for that. Uh, you guys ever see the the show? Um, Snoop Dogg was a narrator. It was like a scary show, Tales of the Crib. Yeah, crib, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, you know. And that 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 black guy ends up being in like a, I don't know what the hell, but he's in like a jail prison like box. Mm-hmm. And the white guy was next to him was a, a like a Klan member. Yeah, and he said, "Yeah, I like you, brother. You know, you you're right because he yep. he's doing his job for him. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's what he was telling. Yeah, him too. yeah, that's, he, what, that's exactly what yeah, he was telling. Exactly. He's thanking him. Yeah, making and, it easy for him. And so I try to make it when I give these tours, whether it's white people or black people, to come out to the farm. I try to make it so realistic that sometimes you see the women cry. Mm. You see people shake their head in disbelief because this, what I teach them, isn't taught in history books. Sure. You're not going to hear about the when the when the slave, uh, uh, when it became illegal to bring slaves over from Africa, when the slave trade ended about 1807. All right? Well, before you go, no, I, I had to interrupt you. How did the slave trade end? Uh, the slave trade ended because... Uh, in the South, they got up to 4 million slaves, all right? And uh, that's a lot of slaves in one area. Mm-hmm. And they were fearful that one day something was going to kick off because there already had been rebellions in the early days of slavery. You had slaves killing their masters, and then they'd go liberate another bunch of slaves at another plantation, and they were killing and going until they, like in one thing, they had like almost 200 slaves in this big wooded area where they settled at. Well, all the whites, what they ended up doing was forming a militia of about 1,000 men. They just went there and shot them all up. You know, but that's what was scary about it. So that's one reason why it ended. But when you end something, that's a good thing. Then you get black piracy, you know, black pirate type stuff. And so people were still going over to Africa or other places where they had slaves bring them and then they get them from there and still sneaking them in. But the thing is, the United States had like a their own little Coast Guard back in the 1800s that patrolled our waters. And when they see a ship coming in, if that ship had what they believe was a pirate type ship, they'd approach it. But all that ship captain had to do was throw all the slaves off the ship. If there was no slaves found on the ship, they couldn't arrest them. Even though the slaves are right right in the water, right by the boat. Yeah. You know, <laughs> didn't make no sense and stuff like that. So when the slave trade ended about 1807 around in there, that's when they got the idea, let's, let's start making breeding farms. You know, sure, a master could put his females with another slave and let them have children. But that wasn't given a good population you know, all the way around. So they started breeding farms and these breeding farms, they would take the young black females when they'd come into womanhood, 12, 11, 13 years old, they'd have put them with five, four black men a day, every day till they became pregnant. Because see, they had no way of knowing if this black man 
could get her pregnant. So you can't just put her with him. You know, they don't even know if she could or not. So you put them with multiple men and you lessen your chances of her not getting pregnant and better your chances. Once she got pregnant, she's taken out of that stall and she's putting in a whole different area and has that baby. All right. Three weeks after that baby, she put right back in there. Most of those women that did that didn't live past the age 16 or 17. Some even were killed because they would catch a venereal type disease. And even if they would have had or had a cure for that, they wouldn't give it to them because it's considered animals. You don't give that to, to them and stuff. So uh, when the slave uh, trade ended, they started doing that, and then they just introduced another way of, of doing things. And, of course, then the prices of slaves went up because now they're being mass-produced yeah. and sitting, sitting brought over, you know. What would kind of be a, an equivalent to a, a fee somebody would pay for a slave in today's? Okay. Um, for a young, healthy female slave, the going price was usually 800 to $1,000. For a young, healthy male, was a thousand to twelve hundred dollars. So, uh, if you were going to take that type of money and put it out there today and say a slave cost twelve hundred dollars back then, you're probably talking about uh, mm, could be as high as fourteen thousand, maybe even higher for for a person, and and it would even go higher if you're a mulatto. You, they could get anywhere from twenty four hundred to four grand, depending on what you look like. Because a mulatto, she was beautiful, and a lot of people got to remember mulattoes in the early stage looked like white people. A lot of a lot of slaves that uh, were were mulatto who ended up getting their freedom or escaping went back into the north, posing as white people, purchasing slaves at the auctions with money that was given to them by the abolitionists in the north, and they go there and they purchase them and bring them back and set them free. Some Stuff like that. Children of their masters. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. A lot of them. I mean, in the, you know, uh, like uh, Thomas Jefferson. You know, found out later that he had you know children with a a slave, and probably a lot more than that. You know, you throw where they go through history, but you know, um, it, it's just the fact that, like I said, they were used as animals. Uh, Chattel. Yeah, and and in the beginning, before the mulattoes came along, for they allowed us to happen. Uh, it was considered bestiality to have sex. And although the master, you know, hey, he going to do what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It's his property. If, but if the woman got pregnant, he'd beat her, have her beat till she lost a baby or died. He didn't care because in the beginning days, I mean, slavery was plentiful. You know, you lost some slaves, ship's going to come in, put your order, and go get some more. A lot of slaves died off in the beginning. You know, the ones that died before they even got here because they couldn't take the voyage ride over here. Or the ships didn't have enough food because they ran into storms. And they're running out of food, so they throw the slaves, you know, so many slaves overboard, you know. Sick. Yeah. But the ones that uh, the ones that they already had money paid up front, they keep them slaves. Because a lot of people put in an order, you know, I want this many male slaves or this or that. So they put in an order for them, and they'd make sure those slaves made it over, yeah. you know. Um, but not all of them. So, you know, we just uh, how things went. Well, those conditions during the Middle Passage, you think there's no restrooms. Mm-hmm. And then when there's no restrooms, there's defecation and feces everywhere. Now you got vomiting and mm-hmm. now you got people getting sick. Somebody next to you crying, going mm-hmm. anxiety. Yeah. It's just, it was terrible. Yeah. Toxic situations. Yeah. And for oh, yeah. months, for yeah. months at for a months. time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you guys see the movie Amistad? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's probably, well, that's the only movie I've ever seen that depicts, you know, ship life for a slave. 
And you saw how they laid it on the tables that urine and piss would just flow across yeah. the tables back and forth, you know, and then somebody was sick and throwing up, you know, and then they take all those ones that, that were too weak or whatever, and they chain them to that rock and then throw them over the water, you know, and let them drown. But this big boulder takes them down to the bottom of the ocean and stuff. You know, I mean, uh, there's no way even me with no matter how, um, pinpoint I try to be what the cruelty was like, could I ever, ever, ever display what it was truly like to be a slave in that kind of way? Um, I've got a, a biography of a slave named Willis McDonald. He lived to be 110 years old. He died in Jacksonville at the age of 110. I got a story from when he was born in a cabin in Kentucky to when he died in Jacksonville from being a baby all the way through him escaping from the, the plantation to him going back to the plantation when he had escaped, he ran into the Union Army and found out the war was going on to free the slaves. So he went back to the plantation to try to tell them they tried to capture him for the master, mm. you know. And uh, so he he gets away and he's traveling along and he uh, he starts finding all this Confederate money. And so he's sticking in his pockets thinking he's rich, but it's not any good because the, the Union soldiers have been through. But I've got his whole story. You know, his story is tragic. There's humor, you'll, you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll be mad. All the stuff that happened to this guy who survived to be 110 years old, but his life still doesn't even reflect. And as a 10-year-old boy, he saw slaves in a in a, in a a barn where they took him to whip him at. They were, he said they were hanging by their thumbs and their arms were bigger around than their legs. You know, they had a thing called the whipping wheel that looked like a, as I explained to you, it looked like a teeter-totter, except it doesn't teeter and totter. It just had a slant like this. And they'd tie the slave where his hands up here, his feet are together, and his back's exposed. Then they'd take the thing that had like a wheel on it. You take a tricycle, turn it upside down. You can turn the thing to make the wheel go around. And it had these stains sticking off of them. And on the end of these things, they had hooks on these tassels. And they'd turn it over his back. And when it hit his back, the hooks would hook into his meat and his back and just throw the meat out. They made him see all this stuff. And that's what made him end up going ahead and escape. Because um, he he was going to get beat, he's getting beat anyway. Because he he cheated them out of cotton instead of going into the fields. He snuck into the bins and started putting cotton in his bin when he was just a boy. And at the end of the day, he picked more cotton than any slave on the plantation. And so they knew he was stealing yeah. it. So he overshot. Wow. Being a historian of this type of information, how do you emotionally keep yourself in line? with receiving this type of information mm -hmm. and going over it, the numerous hours that it had to take to gain the knowledge that you have. You know, and, and that's what the hard thing about, it. I had a, a woman, a black lady who became one of my committee members. And when she started learning about the underground world and the things the slaves went through, when she just retired, she goes, Art, how do you, how is it you're not a racist? How is it you don't hate white people with all the stuff you know? How are you not, you know, just going crazy with this and, and how they treat it. I said, well, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe it's because of why it's brought up. You know, my mom, she cleaned white people's houses, you know. And when I was young, when I was about nine, she started taking me with her. And these white people were the ones that when we didn't have money, would give my mom extra money, give her money for, you know, Christmas time to get us presents. So I grew up with a different understanding as a child that not all white people are bad. They will help you out and do stuff. And then, like I said, I went to that grade school where, you know, you had black, white, rich, poor all going there. And so it was pretty, pretty decent. So I kind of grew up with an idea of 
even though as I learned things through school, not everybody was that way. But in the same sense, when I went to school, slavery, when we talked about slavery, everybody shut up. No, but we went through the Civil War, and then the teacher would lightly touch on slavery. But every time she touched on slavery, when I was in junior high, I felt like a light came on me, you know? So I'm, I'm sitting like this. In my mind, I'm just waiting to get past this. And all the white kids, nobody's saying nothing. But as soon as we passed the slavery part, everybody started acting like it wasn't nothing again, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so when I started learning more about this and the, the evils of what they did, sure, it made me mad. But I thought, you know what? What better way to get my anger out and to point that back at them through the history of what they did. Because a lot of them had no idea. I mean, even when the slavery was going on, the North, a lot of the people in the North didn't know. They thought, oh, well, these people are better off. They're running around the jungles, you know, hardly clothed, eating this and eating that and can't talk and talking all this stuff, you know. Now over here, look, they're, they're living in a cabin. You know, they're being fed. They're working. They're learning to trade, you know. It wasn't until uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin came out and that people changed a lot of people's mind what slavery was really like. And then uh, people started changing and stuff. So that's kind of how I dealt with it. I was able to take that history and make a, a woman cry. I was able to take that history and make a white man shake his head in disbelief and, and feel guilty about something that he wasn't even a part of, you know? But now he came up there and saw, and he's really seeing how his people, his descendants were, were, were looking at and treating us, you know? And they'll come up and tell you, I had no idea. I, I did not know. Because in some white towns, all white towns, they don't teach that. No. They don't touch the underground railroad at all. No. <laughs> you know? They barely nipped that in in school. You know, when I was in school, mm-hmm. it just, it's, everything is grazed over. Yeah. Like you said, take the Springfield Rich Rides. I didn't even find out about them until I was 35 years old. Right. You know, and my mom was born in 1916, which was after the riots. Yeah, 14 but, years. Yeah, but when I when I, I approached her, I said, Mom, I said, you knew about the Springfield Race Riots growing up, didn't you? She goes, yeah. I said, how come you never told us nothing about anything that? She goes, why would I tell you something that was just a normal part of my life? Hmm. That was like a cold shot in the face. Yeah. A normal part of her life, you know? That kind of treatment of being black was just a normal part. So why am I going to tell you about something that's just normal for me, and that that gave me a lot of respect of, of my mindset and what I need to do from that point forward in my life, because that told me what they went through, that was normal, you know. The things we the things we argue about and and are mad about how we're being treated, it's unfair. But they they didn't even get that. They didn't get to open their mouth and say it, you right. know. So it it taught me that you know they could get where what they got through to get me where I am. I should be able to take it on myself to get others further, you know, and that's what's been my kind of goal through all this. And I think that's lost. Todd tapped on it earlier, uh, the passing of the history down through the generations where my parents grew up in the 40s, where their parents, you know, I had my grandparents, so they were into their 80s. And you think how far back were the 60s, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? I grew up in the 80s. I was born in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So... It goes back for me mm-hmm. where I could talk to my grandparents and they talk about, you know, walking with King or watching this. And and these generations are so far removed from our black history in the United States of America that they run around with total disregard mm-hmm. for anything. Like you said, the usage of the N word mm-hmm. is just I mean, I could use it and still have the history. Right. At this point, it's it's not it's unchecked, mm-hmm. you know, and there's no history knowledge of history 
of, of the word or mm-hmm. what we've gone through or been through. Like you said, that was your mom's every day. Mm-hmm. You know, we weren't able to sit at those counters, mm-hmm. you know, those basketball players, mm-hmm. you know. So it's uh, it's very important what you're doing. I feel like you're a griot, you know, an African telling stories to, to, through word, you mm-hmm. know. Well, thank you. And, and, and the listeners, I know they are eating this up because mm-hmm. you are dropping knowledge, sir. Well, thank Definitely. you very much. I appreciate that. What's something that you came across your um, your career that surprised you the most? Like you had a preconceived or you had something that just surprised you? Mm, um, it would be just how bad it was still going on while I was walking through it, but not not being bothered by it. You know, I didn't, didn't really know about it because, like I said, my mom and them were the pillars that I walked underneath. It was still going on around me. It was still happening. Uh, when I got in high school, uh, the students before me, it was during, like, the Black Power movement. It started a few years before I got to high school. And uh, for me as a kid growing up Black Power, I understood we had our wristbands, we had our gloves, but I didn't really know what Black Power meant. I knew it meant black people being together. But I didn't know the history behind it. I didn't know nothing about the Black Panthers. I didn't know about Jim Crow and all that other stuff. You know, I didn't know what these young black students that were in the high school were really doing. And when they had the Black Student Union there, I got to learning to understand. I said, well, we got a black student union for what? You know, <laughs> then you start realizing that because we're not allowed to have the same things that the others are having, you know, and then, um, like my mom, I'd, I'd ask her about things. She goes, well, I said, you have dances? She goes, oh, yeah, they had dances at the high school. I go, did you go? She goes, no. <laughs> she goes, they were the 50s dances. You know, we we weren't allowed to, to be in there and do stuff. Everything we did, we did on our own. The school didn't support us in, in these kind of things and stuff like that. So um, being that I'm I'm walking underneath what my mom and them have raised up for me, not to like Moses opening up the water, letting the, you know, the people go through there. That's kind of what my parents and her generation did for me. I know I'm going through danger. I know there's danger out there, but I'm, I'm walking through this unscathed and, and, and really not becoming knowledgeable in the way I should have, but they, they wanted, they didn't want me to have to go through those things, you know? So they, they did the sacrificing for that to happen. But then when I got, little older in high school, then I started realizing, you know, what black power meant. And I started seeing how we were being used in certain things, whether it be in sports, you know, I'd hear about, uh, we have a group that graduated in the 1960s. They all went to college. They became doctors, lawyers, dentists. They came back to Jacksonville to try for jobs there. Couldn't get them. White people wouldn't hire them. Even though these same guys were the football stars, did everything, you know, whatever, went to college there in school and became all these great people. When they came back after school, all the white counterparts got the jobs, you know, through their families or whatever. So this particular group, they have never been back for a reunion since that happened. They all live in like Vegas and different places. Like I said, they're doctors or they're lawyers, they're teachers and stuff like that. But it, it, it hurt them so bad the way they were treated. They vowed not to come back here. They come back and visit. I mean, they don't even visit black people. They'll come back and visit their relatives, sneak in town, be right back out. Won't, won't nothing. The thing that that woke me up the most was because how they were treated and what they did, there's a gap. They created a gap between, if had they stayed, had they got those jobs, 
me and other black kids grew up and others after that would say, hey, I can do this. I can be an attorney. Yeah. I can be a doctor. I can be a lawyer because those people are present. This That town was able to erase that whole opportunity for us to think we could be anything or be anybody. And when you see how things continue to go, you said, you know, this had to be a plan action because the town's the same way as far as letting blacks get something or be included or be about something. It just doesn't happen. They put up all these wall dog murals. They had them painted in town. Not one person is black. They even put one up that has a Confederate flag as a Confederate flag on one side and American flag on that side. And we, we told them this year, you know, how come you can put up a Confederate flag, but you can't put up one black person that did some historic things. You can't do Dr. Kennebrew who owned the first black privately owned hospital in the world. Ken Norton, you know, Ken Norton, I mean, Champion. Ken, Ken yeah. Norton, when they, when he boxed Muhammad Ali and broke his jaw in the high school bowl, they, they had it open for everybody come down and sold tickets and a big screen. They even put a sign outside town, home of Ken Norton. Yeah. When the fight was over two months later, sign disappeared. Should never Gone. went nowhere. Yeah. yeah, should never went nowhere. This day they haven't put nothing up to honor him. It took within wow. the last, I think in the last eight years, they finally, they did put a street, uh, a portion of the street that runs through the area where Africa was at and where the area where he kind of lived at from one, from Morton Avenue to about, probably caused about five blocks, short blocks, and then it ends. And it go to, take, take, takes it back up with the regular name of the street, you know, because they're not going to, they're not giving that. They, they should have named the track field after him. They got what's called the Ken Norton rule. He was he was so good that they entered him in, I think it was seven events in the state. <laughs> he won all of them but one. And the state said, never again will anybody be able yeah, to, to enter us. And they, they created a rule that's called the Ken Norton rule, and it's still on the, the, on the, the books, books yeah. to this day, you know. For just that <laughs> we reason. We gotta make a rule about yeah. you. That's how bad you are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. You know, and uh, but the town they don't want to support him. They don't. Heck they sure. they want nothing, you know, because a lot of those people that are in the 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 places of establishment now, they went to school with him. You know, that's all they heard growing up. Ken Norton, Ken Norton, Ken Norton, Ken Norton. You know, he went away and, and did something, made it on his own, and so he comes back. You know, they don't do this and that. They didn't act like this and that. We have a Martin Luther King. The mayor has a Martin Luther King breakfast every year. When he has a breakfast, that that area is packed. All the white higher uppers that own businesses that are on the boards and stuff like that. They're all there. When it comes time to March, ain't a single one of them there. No. The mayor and maybe one senator or, or state representative, all these people in there. And when I asked the mayor, I said, so how come they're not marching? Oh, well, Art, you know, they got businesses run. I said, wait a minute. I said, they sit here for a two-hour breakfast, but they can't wait an hour more and come back and march three miles, even three miles, not even three miles, to the thing out here, I said, you know, they're not doing it because if they if they show they're supporting this march, they're supporting the black community. They're supporting what Dr. Yeah. King did. Yeah. I said, they're only coming to that breakfast because you're the one who's hosting it. And because they're, you know, supporters of you, they have to they have to make a show. They got us. But, you know, face. and so it's it's so evident, you know, that's just right in your face yep. of how they think about you and stuff. So well, one's a reason and the other one's a cause. Yeah. You don't want to be supporting the cause. Mm -mm. Nope. nope. You're there for a reason. Mm -hmm. And they won't. And we got a, a judge right now who uh, used to be the state's attorney, you know, the prosecutor. And he, he tells those guys all the time, hey, you know, don't don't bullshit me. He said, you know, I, I used to prosecute you. He said, I know what you're about. Now, how can you think you're getting a fair trial? When the judge who used to 
do his job to put you in jail, present all the evidence to put you in jail, is sitting there talking about your past and get ready to throw a sentence on you now. Yeah. It, it's crazy. But, I mean, we don't have the power, the, the power of the black person. We don't have the lawyers. We don't have the attorneys that might have been there had they got the opportunity to to grow and prosper in Jacksonville that they weren't given to say, oh, no, you can't be doing that. That ain't right to challenge it. Whether he could or not, when you start laying blame and start stuff, then you end up getting like Ferguson, you know? Things start opening up. Oh, yeah, well, look, they're arresting all these blacks and using the money to, to do this and this. And then when they get out, of, they finally make bond, they take them over to this next place where they owe money at two and lock them up, you know, and making all this money, unfair stuff. So crazy. <laughs> it's, it's just a mess, you know. So, uh, you know, and I, I cover civil rights, too. Um, my mom, she was the secretary for the NAACP when we uh, when the civil rights movement was going on. And Jacksonville used um, the civil rights bill to get things changed because Jackson in Jacksonville, blacks at Illinois Theater had to sit in the balcony. They weren't allowed to sit in the lower section because that was the whites. So the president at the time, they made a plan. They had his wife go sit in the white section downstairs. And when the usher said, no, miss, you got to go upstairs and sit with a colored in the balcony, she said, I'm not going. And so the ushers went and got the manager. The manager said, miss, if you don't go, we're going to call the police and you can be arrested. And she said, well, you don't separate our money. Why do you separate us? Ooh. You know? <laughs> so, so they took her out and they called the police. And when the police got her down to the police station, her husband was sitting there with the attorney. They bonded her out. The next morning, they went up to the, the courthouse to the state's attorney with the civil rights bill and saying, according to this, they have to open this establishment to anybody, regardless of race, creed, color, religion, or whatever. And if they don't, they have to close indefinitely. Well, it was a it was federal law. You had to do that. But see, places like Jacksonville, cities and counties all over the United States, they knew they had to do it, but they weren't enforcing it. Mm-hmm. All right. So unless you unless you broke a law to be arrested for doing something that you should have been able to, you didn't have the ability to go up because you just took the civil rights saying, say, oh, you guys are supposed to do this. Yeah, okay. And they wouldn't do that. But once once you break a law, they got to enact on that law. They've got to have your court case, and that's how they presented it to him. And so they told the owner, and he opened the place up, all right? So blacks were able to sit where they want to. So they used the same reason to open up all the places. They got the, the golf course open. The only problem they had that created conflict was the swimming pool. Mom said that when uh, blacks couldn't swim in the, the city pool, they, had this, they swam in this little creek like pond that was across from the pool. And then when they did that, the South Jacksonville police would try to uh, county would try to arrest them because that, you couldn't swim in there. They, they, a matter of fact, because Jacksonville and South Jacksonville are two separate towns, but they're, they're connected. Mom said in order to go to the park, they had to walk on the railroad tracks all the way from the north side to the south side because they tried to walk on the streets. They'd be harassed by the white people, and the cops would harass them or tell them to get out of town. You can't be here and stuff like that. So they'd walk on the tracks. Well, anyway, this black gentleman went to the war. He married a white lady over in Europe and brought her back with her son. Well, while they were back here in Jacksonville, they had a little baby who was mixed. She wanted to go swimming one day. So she takes her baby and she takes her son and she goes to the pool and they tell her, well, you and your son can go, but your child's mixed. So you can't go in the pool because, you know, blacks aren't allowed in the swim pool. So she told her husband, he went to the NWCP. They went to the park board. The park board said, okay, boom, opened up the pool. Was no fighting, was no argument. When the blacks started going in the pool, the whites stayed in the pool. The problem happened when the blacks got in the water. 
back in those days, they put so much chlorine in the water, your eyes just burnt. All right. So when the blacks came out of the water with the chlorine, you know, in their skin and the air hit them, what do you think happened? They Ash. turned, what'd you say? Ashy. Yeah. Ashy. <laughs> they turned ashy. And I ain't talking about where I scratched myself. Ash. I'm talking about chalkboard <laughs> ashy, yeah. you know? And so when the whites saw the blacks changing colors in front of them, they thought they had a disease and the whites <laughs> left the pool yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and refused and refused to come back in. They had to have, they had to have meetings to show them and prove to them. They did not have a disease that this happened because <laughs> of the chemicals in the, in the, that they put in the pool and reaction to their skin, to those chemicals. When the air hit them, this is what happened. And so it showed an ignorance, but not yes. an ignorance, not, 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 a, not an ignorance because the white people were actually dumb, but an ignorance that grows when you're separated, kept apart from each other. You do not learn things about each other. You know, yeah, my mom yes. said the white kids, when she went to school in grade school, the, a lot of the white kids that came from the smaller white towns that, that went to school there, they told their kids that my mom and them grew tails at midnight. You know, <laughs> and so the kids, and so the kids, and so the kids, yeah, and so the kids wouldn't play with them because they're supposed to be like monkeys. But mom said, every once in a while, you get a white kid trying to raise your dress up uh, yeah. in the back to see if you had a tail. Yeah. Wow. Well, of course, who could disprove that? Because at twelve o'clock, white kids and black kids are all at home in their beds. Mm -hmm. You know, but that's the kind of scare tactics they would use just to keep their white kids who came from these little farm towns from fending, from fending this black person so they could keep their minds going on, that's a bad person, this is this, you know? And it, it just, when you've worked that hard to keep your somebody separated, it just, what 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 is that? You know, I mean. How big was the mind manipulation at play? Uh, the mental, the mental, like, like you were just saying, like the mental trickery, the barriers, the disinformation oh it was it was it was pretty heavy i mean especially when uh if you talk about during the times of my mom and them i mean um like i said the, the only reason my mom got past a lot of this stuff because she worked for whites in their homes and they were good to her so she knew everybody was in that way but like my mom when capitol records yeah. uh, came to jacksonville yeah my mom and oh a lot of blacks went out there Every one of them failed the test. <laughs> every one, every black person failed the test. So what happened? The NWZ got involved, gathered up those tests, took them up to Chicago just the way they were, and demanded to see the test results of the other whites and people who took this test. And when they showed that the blacks had answered the questions, the same answers with the same stuff, oh, hell broke loose. You know, they were going to have a big lawsuit, but Capitol Records said, hey, we apologize. They fired a the guy who was in charge of that plant, and he let the blacks go in and work. But that's that's the kind of thing that they, you know, we're not going to have you here. But my mom's group was a group that was challenging everything and making things happen. Um, oh, other mental things would be that uh, um, you're not as good as the, the white kid. You know, you'd even hear that even white kids would come up to you, nigger, you know, whispering you're nigger like this and that. You know, you want to do something, but you did something, then you got in trouble. Right. You know, right. oh, you know, because he's pointing the finger at you. He's saying you did this, you did this, and so like, get over here in the office, you know. And you don't want to get talked to, and your parent gets called. But you know, your parent ain't gonna take you home and whip your butt because they knew you didn't do that. They they taught you you don't go start no trouble with no no white person in school because they didn't want you to get kicked out. It took too long and too hard to get us in school. My my father he dropped out. He didn't go to seventh grade. You know, he started working 
at that age to help out around the house. Most black men didn't make it in the high school, didn't make it in the junior high a lot of times. And that's all the way up, in, way up into the 60s, you know. So uh, there was those kind of mental games. There was the mental games that, uh, you know, uh, like I said, in football, they want you to play football, but the only place you can do is tackle. You know, yeah. you're not going to run, you know, which all those things are made to see you as being less than, than your counterpart who was white. Sure. Whether it was that, whether it was uh, any other kind of sports and stuff like that and things. So. Not smart enough for the quarterback position. Yeah. Just yeah. athletic. Putting some blacks in uh, in what would called retard classes yeah. when they weren't retarded, hmm. you know, just didn't know, well, you know, a these guys here were running out of room, throw them in retard class, you know, just as capable and able as anybody else, but they put them in a the class with the kids that were slower, you know, and they didn't really have no choice, you know, to do that. And matter of fact, I stopped, I stopped the high school about six years ago. They have a place called a garrison school. Um, that's where they send kids that need help because they're falling behind on their grades, you know, and stuff like that. That's what it's supposed to be designed for or, or girls that got pregnant and couldn't keep up, so now they, they sent them over there. But it turned out that they were just taking black kids they didn't want and white kids they didn't want. The teacher didn't want to teach and deal with them and send them over to that school and stuff like that. Well, okay, you want to try to use it? That, that's your say. But then I ran across a case where they were sending this one kid there. He quit school because his grandmother died. He couldn't take it anymore. So he quit school. Then when he decided he wanted to go back, they said, well, you're so far behind, we're going to send you over to Garrison School. Well, this kid was not like any of those kids or nothing like that. Didn't need that kind of assistance. And uh, so they contacted me, and I go, well, why did they send you? They said, well, yeah, I have to go. I said, didn't your mom register you to go to Jacksonville High School? So, yep, she registered. She paid the money. But they, when the first day they came to school, they said, oh, you're not going here. You're going to Garrison. So when they got a hold of me, and I went and talked to the principal about it, he goes, well, yeah, you know, he's he, he's going to go over there. It's probably better for him to go over there and, and stuff like that. Well, I kept getting the sense that it wasn't the case because he'd sit back in his chair and rock and do this kind of stuff. And uh, I said, so he's not going to go. He said, well, I'll just put this away. He's not going to go unless I say he can go. And I'm not saying I'm saying right now he's not going, you know, meaning he's not staying there in Jacksonville. So I got a hold of the Board of Education in Chicago. I called them. I told them what was going on. I said, can you send me any information having to do with these type of schools and what the procedure is in getting in there? And, and keeping the student there. And they said, yeah. They said, yeah. So they sent me stuff, and they asked me what was going on. I wrote them a letter. So they sent me this information. This school, if they decide they want to send a student there, if they have a, if the kid is 18 years old, of course, he doesn't have to have his parent there. But any kids who are underage that's still in school that has to go there, the parent has to come. The parent has to come to the thing, the, the, the school administrator, principal, whatever, has to tell the parent why they feel that child needs to go to that school. Has to tell them that. Then the parent and the student have the choice to say, no, I don't want my child going there. I want him to stay here. And then they had to educate him at that school. And they were leaving that part all, all together. Right. They weren't even calling the parents, telling them, your son's going over here. And that was it. And when I found that out, I go to the superintendent. He goes, well, he was probably doing that because the old superintendent that was here two years ago probably was had that going. I go, I said, two years ago? I said, it's still going on. So, so what are you doing? I said, you're talking to me why it probably happened, but it's under your thumb that it's happening now, you know? Still, yeah. yeah. And I yeah. said, I said, you don't even go out there to see if he's, do you, you got him in this position. You don't even know if he's following the state rules on this stuff or not, you know? So of course that changed and stuff, but those are the kind of things that surprise you 
that Jacksonville is that kind of town that they don't think anybody's going to push the the thing back at them. Nobody's got the brain or care enough to try to do something against them. But when it happens, it's like, oh, oh, you know, they do read. They do have brains. You know, this one is not like the rest of them. Watch out for him. You know, and then they try to stick it to you in ways they can to make you back off or also to hire blacks to work out there, but not as teachers, but as facilitators uh, with the black kids who get into trouble or something. Mm-hmm. And that's basically it. So buffer. Yeah. Yeah. Basically yeah, buffer. Basically. So that's sad on that. But yeah, and it's amazing these days, you know, like you said, uh, your parents fought to get us into school. So you didn't go to school and act up mm-hmm. where these days the kids, you basically fighting to keep them in the school mm-hmm. because of their money tax mm-hmm. wise, but they don't want to be there. Mm-mm. Their parents aren't, you know, on the other end when you call home sometime. Mm-hmm. A lot of know. times, you know, and not all the parents are working either. You know, when I was, when I was young, you had some kids that lived with their grandmother because the parents couldn't raise them. All. Like I, I, I grew up in a generation where the mom and dad might have six kids, seven kids. And then the dad left. Well, that older kid might be somebody that mom can't handle. But the lady who lives down the street, mom's friend, doesn't have any kids. So guess where that kid goes? That woman takes him in and she raises him. And he gets he gets an opportunity that he wasn't getting with the rest because he's out there acting up, not doing what he's supposed to. But now he's with that lady. He's going to straighten up. He's going to do because she's got the attention to put on him. That's how things happened back in my in my day of growing up. You know, the grandma was a support unit when the, the the parents couldn't handle it or they failed. Today, the grandmas, and I say to everybody's grandma, but today a lot of the grandmas that are my age, they're doing drugs. And they weren't just doing marijuana, they're smoking coke, doing heroin. And so those are the grandmas of today. So in a lot of cases, there's nobody for that kid that grows up whose parents are drug addicts or in jail. And they give them to grandma and grandma's living life just like they were. Yeah. You know, I, I can't tell you how many inmates I met that uh, ended up on the streets earlier just because family life wasn't there for them. But the gang lives were. You know, one one guy told me that he's nine years old. He comes home. He goes up the stairs and his mom's sitting in the dark. He walks past her. She grabs a baseball bat, try to take his head off because she's high, hmm. you know. So he, he felt fear from going home. So he goes out into the streets. You know, and he gets hooked up with the gangs, and there's where his life goes from there. They're taking care of him. They're giving him money for stuff. He's doing drugs, running drugs, you know. So, you know, you run across all that stuff, and, then, of course, then that, that bleeds into other things and stuff like that. But but even on a even on a bigger scale, like, you look at civil rights. We took it. We, we did a lot. Martin Luther King, everybody did a lot to get civil rights. And so I asked people, was civil rights a good thing or was it a bad thing? What do you guys think? I, me personally, I, I think just depending on which ones we're talking about, like if we're talking about segregation, you know. Yeah, let's let's, talk, let's let's say blacks not having equal rights, which was part of the which was part of the march. Our treatments not having equal rights, fair rights. When we end up getting those things, we we're able to to go into the restaurants and sit down, have coffee, eat, drink, you know, uh, and do things like that. Was that a good thing? Bad thing? Well, we were uh, self-sufficient. Our money stayed in our black communities. Beforehand. Yeah, we had our stores. We had, I mean, you know, Black Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And now the black dollar spends no time in the black community. Mm -hmm. We have no ownership. Right. So when you see us out there marching and pushing hard to get these things, all right, 
But they see that, but they also see over the top of his margin and go, damn, they got Black Wall Street. Yeah. They're making money. They're selling and doing things among themselves, and they're starting to get competitive in their own area, but they broke out of that. They'd be competitive with us right here because they didn't show us. They know how to market. They know how to do things. And we don't need you. So, so let's give them what they want. Mm-hmm. And so when they run away from their neighborhoods, what happens? Just like the corner grocery store when Walmart came, all the crony, all the corner grocery stores disappeared. Mm-hmm. So when blacks, oh, I can march in here. I can go and sit down and eat now. Now Joe's where you used to go eat uh, your food. Now he's in close up because the black dollar ain't in there anymore. Mm-hmm. And then so the country says, oh, this is working. Yeah. This is working. But we still don't want them in here with us. You know, we don't want them to live with us. So fair and equal. Let's give them fair and equal housing. Let's give them housing. So they give you housing. They build these giant complexes like in Chicago, yeah. you know, like and I hate use the analogy Roach Motel, but in order to say build it and they will come. Boom. Yeah. Low income housing. Oh, yeah, we'll put you in here. We're going to let you get this assistance and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And this is all you got to pay. And if you can't pay, well, we'll work around that, too. The Robert Taylor, yeah. the Brady Green. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They get you up in there and they tell you, oh, well, it's meant that you'll be in here for a while to give you a chance to get on your feet. And then you go and then another family can come in. And it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. You know what happens now? The woman who originally moved in there is the great grandma or grandma. Her daughter lives over here. Hmm. And her kid who just got pregnant got a house over here now, you know? And so when you remove them and you put them in isolation among themselves, they're not going to prosper. They're not going to grow. They're not going to get the education and understanding and teaching that they were getting when the black communities were to themselves because the guy who owned the store, his kids were growing up learning that store. You know, the education, those black teachers and stuff were doing their best to educate those students because they knew what they had to go up and be against. But when you open up places like the projects and say, hey, come on up in here. You ain't got to pay. You ain't got to this. Your, your wages are going to be low. Oh, yeah, you can you can drive that brand new car, you know, for whatever reasons. Because mm-hmm. you see some places they got nice rides, rims, wheels all over them. But they live in, in, in housing that's, you know. They don't. Made own, for them. They don't have. They don't own their own house. Yeah, they don't own their whole house. So their 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 credit isn't there because they don't have a reason to apply for credit right. because everything is there. So as far as credit worthy, there it's not any good. They get jobs. Well, I'm not going to go work. You know, someplace I'll be like slave labor to make this money when I go work at Dollar General. Because matter of fact. I can't make too much money or I'm going to lose my assistance. Sure. You know, so <laughs> that's a jail. It's, it's a whole different way of, uh, of thinking. So it's a different kind of slavery. Yeah. So when they do this and like I was teaching, telling others, I said, okay, so if you got all the blacks that you would consider a threat, all the gang that end up become gang type blacks and blacks that are this and this, and then you got all these other blacks sprinkled out throughout the country. The ones that are, you know, some have money, some are middle-class, but they're they're some are in the white neighborhoods, some are in the better type neighborhoods. But then the the the, the nuclei of the ones that you fear as a white person are in the projects. All right. I said, how many of you think that the United States may or may not have missiles trained on those areas? Because if somebody could ever get a group in here to do an uprising, so they could attack from the outside, where do you think that threat's going to come from? Heavily populated. Yeah, heavily populated areas. Yeah. Urban areas. They're already in there fortified. They've already got guns and stuff. So you think they're going to send our military in there to to just go in there and, and, and wax butt 
and take prisoners? No. If we got a threat where another country was going to actually come in and they felt that we were a threat, send the missiles up in there and you blow everybody out. Proof being, reason I say that, look at the when we went to war against Japan, what they do with all the Japanese? Camp. Camp. They locked them up in internment camps for four years. They went and rounded them all up and put them in internment camps for four years because they felt they were a threat because we're fighting a country that they are relative to as far as their nationality, but they've been citizens here fighting in the war before that and living here and being citizens, U.S. citizens, for years. But the minute a threat comes that looks like them, round them up, lock them up. Look at the Indian Removal Act, you know? They rounded up all the Indians, marched them off their lands. People say, oh, the, terror trail, the, the Trail of Tears, that was such a, a sad thing that they marched on the Indians. That was a death march. Yeah, That was to, to, limit, that was to, to limit the numbers because they had killed a lot of the tribal warriors off in wars. And now these were all the ones that were family members, women you know, children. older men, women, children, and stuff like Sick, that. Old. Yeah. So they marched them for miles. And when they marched them? Not during the best weather, no. not during the fall, wintertime, summertime was hot. You think they got enough rations to feed on them? Oh, the troops got plenty of food to eat, but they ran out of food for them. So by the time they get to where they're going, the numbers are less than they started with. So therefore, they don't have to worry about an uprising by them because they depleted their numbers. Yeah, Same thing they could do today. I tell people, we look at how they're running up all the Hispanics, you know, Somebody had told me before they even used the Walmart things, man, you know, they're, they're putting fences up at these Walmart places. Something's going on. And this is where Trump even got up in there. So they're putting these fences up at these Walmart places. You know, what, what are they doing this stuff for? I, I have a clue. Well, I got a clue now, don't I? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And they're saying that what they're doing to the Hispanics is a model for what they can do to the rest of us sure. when, when things happen. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but if you look at how people are acting, you know, you went to a period where, Whites could say where they want to, black couldn't do nothing about it. Then went to a period where, oh, can't say nothing because you lose your job. Can't say nothing, you go to court. Can't say nothing because feds come get you. Well, now they're talking again. Mm-hmm. Now they're saying things and nothing's happening to them. You're tweeting, you know? yeah. Yeah, and then you got the same people that are supposed to protect you, killing you. Yeah. You know? I mean, uh, uh, I don't know who's had uh, run-ins with the police in a way, in that kind of way. I've always, you know, when they say, well, the police are doing this, they're doing this. You can, it makes you mad and you can feel it. But until you had it happen to you, you can't. I had it happen to me out here on, on 72 about three years ago. I came down to Jacksonville to pick my son up. I was living in Decatur, taking Decatur, was driving in the left-hand lane of the highway. And we went past a cop. He saw us. I didn't look at him, but he saw us in the car. Kept on going. Five minutes later, here's a car coming up real fast behind me. So I get in the right-hand lane, thinking he's going to go by. He pulls behind me, and I realize that cop. I told my son, I think we're going to get pulled over. He goes, why, Dad? I said, I don't know. The lights come on. He comes up to the door, this tall cop, bald head and stuff like that. He goes, "Uh, where are you going? I go, I just came to Jacksonville, picked my son up. We're going to Decatur. And he he stands up and looks around. He goes, "Uh, why don't we talk talk outside the car? Whoa. So (laughs) my son looks at me and goes, Dad. I go, don't worry, it's okay. So I get out of the car and I got my license and insurance in my hand. So I get out there. And he says, uh, turn around. So I turn around. And he said, raise your arms. So I raise my arms, got my license like this. He's frisking me down. What were we talking about? Yeah. And then he, then he goes, then he goes, um, uh, well, it's kind of dangerous standing here between the cars with traffic going by. Let's go get in my car. And so now 
my Marine Corps instincts are already kicking in. Sure. I'm already thinking this guy zumped something. He's he I I, I realize he's he's thinking I'm one of those black people who are gonna get disruptive. What man? Why, why can't I get in your car? Why did he wants to get me ramped up so something would happen? Sure. But I'm I'm keeping myself. I said I said okay. So I go and I start to go to the back door. He says no, sit in the front. So I'm thinking like okay, something's going on here. Mm-hmm. You know, my son's he separated from my son, so my son can't see what's going on. He's put me in the front seat with him. So when he gets in, his gun is on his right side, which is to my left. Sure. You know, so I'm sitting there and while he's just sitting there looking at this paper, writing some stuff down, my mind's engaging what my next move is going to be if he does something stupid. So my mind's saying, okay, his weapon's right there. He's either got to go like this to get it or whatever. But if he tries to go with a gun, I'm blocking it, put my hand on top of that revolver with my arm so he can't raise it up. And we're going to be doing a slugfest, you know, out if something should happen. But he put me in that mode, yeah. which was dangerous for me, for myself to become that mode. Because here I'm thinking, I'm going to become a victim or something, and I've seen it happen. I, I've seen it on the news. I've heard all the protests, and now I find myself in that position. You know, I worked for the Department of Corrections at the time. I had done 11 years in the Marine Corps, you know, and here I am, feel totally hopeless, helpless to do anything because I figured the wrong move is going to get me killed. Yeah. If not by him, by his people when they come up, when I radioed in, hey, I need your assistance. This cop has been injured by me, blah, blah. You know, they're going to come with guns drawn regardless yeah. of what I say. Yeah. So I'm going to sit in that car about four minutes before he finally says, well, I guess you want to know why I pulled you over. I go, yeah. He goes, well, uh, new laws out. You can no longer drive in the left-hand passing lane continually. You pass a vehicle and you get back over. And I wanted to say, is that it? I said, oh, I didn't know that, you know. And so he says, well, I'm just going to give you a warning on that. And uh, that was it. Gave my warning. I went back to the car and I took off. But I was angry. I was I was so mad. Yeah. I was mad at myself. I was mad at what he did to me. He stripped me of, of, of far longer, me being a man, defend myself against and ask a question on things that I know weren't right. You know, my, yeah. my just tell me he was trying to set me to do something. So I got a hold of the state police and told them what happened. And they called me, they had a guy calling back next day. He said, well, Mr. Wilson, I can't really give you an explanation. We hadn't had a chance to talk to the officer. He said, but what might've happened was it might've been the fact that your car matched the description with you two in it. Might've matched the description. The number one go-to. Yeah. That's the go-to so, every time. So he, he, got, he pulled you over to see if possibly you were that person. Yeah. I said, okay, I understand that to a degree. I said, but if I was that big of a threat that they had a description out to watch this vehicle. Why would he walk up to the vehicle like it was nothing, you know, stand there and then pull me out of the vehicle? Yeah. Put me in 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 front of him and, you know, then have me turn around, frisk me. I said, he didn't even go past my waist. I said, I could have had something in my socks or whatever. I said, then he's going to put me in the front seat. Right. I said, so that kind of, you know, goes against what you're talking so about. Totally. That narrative totally. You're trying to build I said, there. he didn't even take my license or nothing to call in to see if I might have been something. Yeah. You know, and once he got up there, I'm sure he had to see the Marine Corps plate on it, but that didn't even stop him. Most cops, they, they come up, if I'm speeding a little bit, they'll, they see my Marine Corps plate, they'll just cruise off and go about their business, you know. But uh, this guy was, he was on some crap. And, but that was the reason. They said, we can't say, we know it sounds whatever, but we weren't here. We don't know. We haven't talked to the officer. Never heard back from him. 
Not that, not that I expected to. They ain't going to tell me they said something or did something to him. Right. Just like I was in corrections, the inmate never found out what if what, what they did to the, the officer or said was going right. to whatever. You know, it's the same thing. But and I, to this day now, because that happened to me, if I travel someplace, like I always would try to find out if I'm going to go through, a, if I'm going down south, I try to find out where I'm going and stuff like that, you know. Uh, because you know, I used to try to find where the clans located. You know, make sure I don't go mm-hmm. there. But now, the guys got got in my head that if I, I try to find out the populations of town, black, white population size, if I know they don't have any blacks or the black numbers are really small, I try to hit that town during the day. That means that I got to stay someplace else that I normally would have kept going, so I won't go through that town at night. I stay someplace else. Because I know what it feels like to be put in a situation that you really can't get out of until that person says you're done or you act out. So what I know is I go to a town that I know is predominantly all white and I get pulled over at nighttime. They pretty much do and say what they want, you know, but he's made me now to where I've got to plan my route. I can't just get in my car and drive and enjoy the trip. I've got to, I've got to plan to protect myself or my kids or whoever was with me when I go through these places because I see how this is happening right all across the United States. And for it to happen to me personally, but not end up in a death thing because I just went along with whatever he said, didn't act out, didn't say nothing, but not knowing how close it could have came to that, you know, it, it, it's, it, it, it pisses me off. I mean, to no end that I, because of my experience with this one knucklehead, I'm sitting here, Trying to find out what areas I got to go through that is predominantly white and, and not black. That takes us back to that underground railroad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and living on that road and having mm-hmm. to be off the road. Yeah. during yeah. the day. Yeah, same the same experience. Yeah, you know? but in today's society, as a person who has supposedly same rights as everybody else, mm. you know, kind of speaking, we just spoke on some civil rights a few minutes ago. What are your thoughts on the passing of Elijah Cummings today? Oh, man. I definitely hated to see that happen. I hate to see his passing. He was younger than I, yeah. oh, I thought. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't I didn't take him for 68. I thought he was an older, yeah. uh, older man than yeah, that. Yeah, because I'm 62, and to know that he was only six years older than me, and he was going through all the stuff that he did, and, you know, marching and stuff like yeah. that, really said a lot more to me than I really even knew about him, how long he had actually been involved in feeling the way he does. And then when he started showing, like, uh, clips when he was talking about things were happening, you know, and what they need, you could you could really hear it in his voice. And yes. then sometimes he actually cried. So by him dying, him him him, you know, passing, that was a big major loss because we don't have too many of them left. We don't. We don't even have anybody that can gather us and march. As far as I'm concerned, you know, I mean Jesse Jackson. I always saw him as somebody puts out spot fires, you know. Coming up under Martin Luther King, I would have thought he'd be a better, not that he's a bad leader, but I thought he had been more yes. out there exposing and not just troubleshooting things and this and that. And uh, it was disappointing not to see King's dream continue because it's like King got us to a spot and we said, oh, this is shady. Huh. <laughs> you know, we just sat there enjoying what we had. Not knowing that the change still hadn't happened yet, things were still going to go on. So, him passing to me is just like King or Malcolm X or anybody else, you know, that was trying to make some major changes 
in the history that we lived. And and the thing is, he wasn't just doing it for black people. He was doing it for anybody who was in some unfair conditions. He would talk about it in that way. So to see that he's gone right now, I hope that his passing and his life, he raises everybody's awareness up to what is happening, what's going on, and changes people. But with Trump in there, you know, I'm looking at the day, any day now, he's going to say something negative about him. I can feel it. Because he's not going to say yeah. anything positive. No, I mean, no, no. Look at what he did to mm-hmm. McCain. Yeah. So, oh. yeah, I expect him to be. You know, he'll probably say something like, uh, well, now I'm to get somebody to clean up the rats and roaches. You know? He's going to say something yeah, disrespectful. Something disrespectful yeah. like that, you know? Yeah. yeah. But, on uh, cue. <laughs> yeah, on yeah, cue. Yeah. On yeah. He's just uh, a mess, you know? And like I said, uh, people say, well, he hasn't really done nothing to be impeached. You know, of course, Republicans said, well, um, okay, let's see. When I was in the Marine Corps, if somebody was up higher and they couldn't do the job, incompetency was enough to remove them. So this man's been talking and acting incompetent since day one. So that's an impeachment offense right there. If, you, if you're making changes in the government, how we do things, tweeting things out and making changes that people don't even know you're making, you're, you're, you're disrupting the balance of, with our uh, allies and stuff and, and doing this stuff, that's incompetent. You're making decisions that are totally un, un, unrelative to what's going on, and they're all about your ability to have this power. And for nobody to stop him from doing it, he's become a dictator, you know, because – He's getting what he wants. He's not ruling the country totally like a dictator, but when it comes to making decisions Policy. and doing stuff, yeah, nobody's nobody's stopping him. Checking him. You know, checking him on it. And that's probably how that starts. Mm-hmm. That's exactly, yeah. how that starts. Exactly, exactly, exactly how, how that starts. That's exactly how that starts. I mean, what he said, if he doesn't get reelected, there's going to be a war. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know, there's going to be a that? civil yes. war. He yes. said, he he said, said be a civil, civil war. war if he don't get elected. And well, see, that's him putting out his little bird call. See, that's see, the power of spoken word. He's he planted a seed. And, yeah. and, I, I, I would like to be think that I'm unique in this situation, but I, I feel as I, I've given him the benefit of the doubt. I, I gave him the benefit of the doubt until. Maybe four months ago, mm-hmm. five months ago, when he told somebody to go back to their country, because there's certain things that I say that can be misunderstood sometimes, and so you know I'm like, well, maybe this dude's like me, you know he he says things off the cuff real fast, and you know he's misunderstood, but. And I look past all. I've looked past even the Char- Charlottesville thing, and mm-hmm. and I I shouldn't have, but it, it's like now. After I've seen that, everybody knows mm-hmm. when you say go back to that. Any black person knows mm-hmm. you say that around them. You, we all know what that means. Mm-hmm. So it's like, man, he's been like this the whole time, and it's weird because you see the you see certain people rally behind some of the negative more negative things that he says and it's like man I'm it's revealing mm-hmm. to get riled up it, mm-hmm. it's revealing who some of these people are these some of these people are are, are your friends mm-hmm. it's confirmation it is and it's it's crazy because of the line he he's in he he he's that guy that 
was able to exploit pop culture and and get into the position where he is now and he is using that to manipulate all the situations that involve him. Mm-hmm. He's a spoiled rich kid that's really done nothing but utilize other people's money to to man's wealth, yeah. <laughs> to 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 drive his brand. Mm-hmm. Not his actual things, his just brand in general to the height of what you to to, to receive a presidency. The the Bernie Sanders, Warrens, the I think that the Democrats have their work cut out still to unseat him. I, I I honestly think there's a big chance of him winning again. Very big. Even after the meltdown the other day? Even after that. I, I mean, because nobody's seen anybody as raw as this. And I think... It speaks to a lot of people. It does speak mm-hmm. to a lot of people. And, and, and it's, you know, some of these feelings that some people have had their whole life. and Or who's been passed down through the generation of of their people. And I'm not saying No, what you're saying is from the beginning. Yeah. Right. You know what I'm the saying? Splitting of the country. We, mm-hmm. we had a civil war. Right. right. So, so that 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 is there. That seed is still it's there. there. Yeah. It's I mean, deep too. It, it's still North and South. You go down the South, you know, a lot of them they'll tell you we would they won the war. You know, yeah. they they this and that, you know, and they, right. they probably will, you know, tell you what history's like in a whole different way as far as how they see and stuff. But I want to ask a question and I heard what you said like, you know, you so you were seeing you giving Trump the benefit of the doubt on certain things because you know you kind of talk off the cuff and say this and that and then you know his people try to clean it up or oh, he didn't mean it like that or you guys are taking it the wrong way. I, I'm the kind of person if I'm taking something the wrong way, that's because they said it in such a way that I can obviously see the confusion in it. Mm-hmm. But when it's direct talk, it's coming out of his mouth and I can see what it's about or what it's aligned it to. I can't really say well. He misunderstood. People can say that, and that's why he got to the point where they say, well, you know, um, what Trump says, people don't, oh, that's just him. When you start to say, oh, that's just him, you're letting him ride. You're letting him run with what he's doing. Yeah. Because now his actions become an acceptable part because you're you're mimicking the actions to his character and who he is, but you can't take away what his actions and characters are doing to the country. See what I'm saying? So when you give him a pass on certain things, and I mean, I, I've heard him say a lot, you know, about a lot of things. And I know about the black part of it. You know, I know about the, 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 what the, those five kids that got arrested and Trump put all that money to put an ad in there yeah, saying they should be this and that. So yeah. exonerated yeah, five. His thing goes back farther than that, you know? And then when he says stuff when he's running, oh, there's my African American, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, so what do you think he's saying? You think so? I got a black person vote for me, or is he saying that's my African American? You know, he he's saying, "Oh, I got one. There, there's one here. Yeah. That's mine. I own him. That, that's mine. Whatever you guys, you rest your black thing about. I got one. So if I got one, that means I got another one here. I got another one here. You know, and that person or others may think, well, yeah, he's he's recognized. No, he's not recognized. To me, he's not recognizing. He's just making a joke. Yeah, you know, right. at you and and to your face. So I don't, I don't. I don't disagree with how you feel and think because I've met a lot of people that uh, feel the same way. Well, I, I think he's good. You know, yeah, I know he says a lot of stuff he shouldn't say, but I like what he's doing. And I still say, what is he doing? 
Show me what this man has done that wasn't on this path to happen after Obama came out of office. Because if you know anything about politics, you know anything about change, you look back over the country, eight years isn't enough to take you from, especially what Obama took on, take it and make everything happen in that eight years. But after that eight years pass, because he got the wheel rolling, you're going to start seeing That's results. Yeah. And whether it was Trump or Clinton, whoever would have got elected, the same positives that you see happening under the Trump administration, jobs or whatever, would have been continuing because Trump wasn't in there long enough to make those kind of changes, to make the the job things change and nothing like that. He's taking credit for something that's already been done. And I was going to say, and it's on record that mm-hmm. he's been taking credit for mm-hmm. things you can prove yeah. that he didn't have right. any influence over. Yeah. And if you look at, I mean, look at, he is dismantling everything Obama did. Yes. He has those things he goes after. He ain't worried about running the country. He's, he's trying to take away everything that he put it that went on Obama's name and and change it to either something that's his or get rid of it all together. That's that's his his thing. The erase that black man from history mm-hmm. this way. Everything that Obama does already documents in history. That's fine. But Trump's gonna make sure that well, this is where it stopped at. This is where his buck stopped at. I touched right it. Right here. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I did that. White power, his power as a white man takes away Trump's what Obama did. Yeah. You know? So just like anything, when, when the black men made the invention and the white man took the credit for it, you know, regardless of was refrigeration to oil or to whatever the black man created, the white man said, oh, hmm, I'll add this part to it. Oh, it's mine now, you know, because I made it this. And just, you know, it's just uh, Trump has, has shown me prior before becoming the president what he was about. And to see how he's enacting and doing things throughout the country and and put it in people's place like we said. Oh, I could I could shoot somebody in New York, kill him, still get like the president. You know, to me, only one person could say that, and that's the devil. <laughs> 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 only the, only the devil can predict and tell you to your face. Wow. I can do this and still get elected. You know, I mean, any other person wouldn't even got elected saying some crap like that. They wouldn't even have thought. You like know. That. Yeah, and but you, you think Barack Obama could ever say that? He can't wear a tan suit. Yeah, Obama wouldn't be. The, look, when Obama gave his first speech, what he would he get? Liar, you know? Somebody <laughs> hollered out "liar" out of the crowd, like, damn. He, <laughs> like for you know, real, he, like Trump is one of the most ridiculous people, anyway, because you know he was he was. Wanting his birth certificate. Mm-hmm. He's just doing the most. He wanted. <laughs> yeah, he's like, yeah. Barack Obama's not an American. I want to see his birth certificate. You know, just the most ridiculous. Mm-hmm. After it was all over. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. It wouldn't matter. <laughs> but, he's you know, that, and that that's how he is. He, he still does it that, that same way, you know. And I don't know why the Republicans are falling in so deep behind him other than, I think, Maybe Russia's put enough fear in people with how they do their own politicians or reporters that don't go along with them that, you know, some people think, man, we crossed Trump. You might end up dead tomorrow. I was going to say, it seemed you know? like Mitch McConnell might have got an envelope. Oh, was like, yeah. Hey, man. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. same guy sitting there talking about, oh, we're, our job is to make sure Obama's a one-term president. You know, I mean, yeah. the guy just got elected. And you talking about making him a one-term president? Gotta Why? Start that four and, years early. Yeah, it can't because he did something wrong or bad to the country because he's just getting started. But you're saying one term. To me, that's saying 
nah, black man ain't getting in here. You know, this ain't this shouldn't have happened. Well, you it got in here, happen. but we're not going to work with you. Yeah, it was yeah, definitely yeah. what happened those eight years. And then he got elected again. Right. <laughs> you know, but it's just uh, I don't know. It just you can see similarities through what's happening here that happened back then. The Underground Railroad, like we were talking about, it's in existence. It's been in existence. Uh, when Trump started talking about he's going to send all these people out of here, you know, all of them, you had uh, Hispanics that were living here that had their right to stay here until their thing or whatever. They were escaping going to Canada. Same thing. They, they were showing them in Canada getting their fingers cut off because of the frostbite, you know, from the traveling through the snow in winter to, to try to get there. So and, and he had people helping him. So it was a modern day underground railroad going on, and for the same reason, these people didn't want to didn't want to be longer. What was going to be happening? They didn't want to go back to a country that didn't know they'd be killed or this or that would happen. And so the only place to go was next door to Canada. So they were running like crazy over there. But when you look at it, it's the same thing that happened back there for almost the same reasons. Because they didn't want to be put in a certain type of predicament and live in a certain kind of way anymore that Trump was going to send them back to. And they, a lot of them weren't, weren't even born over there. You know, he he wasn't just wanting to move the parents. He wanted the kids that were born here, too. Everybody. Oh, everybody. You know, he turned to anchor babies yeah. and crap. You dreamers. Know? Yeah, dreamers. Yeah. You know, I said, and I, I, wrote, I used to write for paper. I wrote a guy, I said, well, you know what? I remember some dreamers came over here on some ships. <laughs> yeah. You know, I said, I said, those are your first dreamers. Yeah. They came over and I said, look what they did. Yeah. I said, I said, the people that you're trying to run out, they didn't do what, what you guys did. You even, know, even more. His wife is an immigrant. Yeah. His child is an, an anchor baby. Yeah. And her parents are over here. Yeah. Of chain train immigration. Yeah. Same. You know? same thing. Exact. Same so thing. it's it's ridiculous. That's what mm-hmm. he's ridiculous. Yeah. That's ridiculous. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. He would literally be talking about something he does. Yeah. And people don't, I mean, even CNN's good at reporting, but they won't even go into too much stuff that makes too much sense because if they kill us, if they kill it, then they know, oh, what are we going to report about? Because yeah. they're going to say, well, Trump, you know what? Uh, you're, I mean, they did talk about his wife up to a degree, but they need to keep stepping it further. They need to show yeah. in relation to what he's trying to do, what he's already done and saying it's acceptable behavior and it's, and it's all right. Because I tell you right now, the Indians are the only race in this country that have not taken on the status of America as far as being a part of it. You can't go anyplace and see an American Indian family sitting at McDonald's or any other place. You go out where they live at, where the reservations are. Yeah, you'll see them in places. you see them doing things. But as far as just being a part of this country, living, breathing, working, and everyday life, the regressives, they didn't do that because they chose not to give up who they were as a people and trade that for what was being offered to them. They stayed where they were, you know, and how they were. And I guarantee you right now, if they had any kind of idea, Columbus or whoever never would have got them ships. It never would have happened. They wouldn't have let them in here, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, finally they're, they're taking Columbus away as far as the holiday after him, because the history that wasn't being taught that they already knew about Columbus comes over here you know, this and that. And they say, oh, we brought the pilgrims over here and they shared with the Indians and the Indians shared with them. You know, them pilgrims, them pilgrims weren't rich people. Those pilgrims were the peasants that were working for white people like slaves over there. They loaded them up on them ships and say, hey, you know, send you over here to the new world, yes. you know? 
because wasn't nobody who had money going to go over here to a place they never been and possibly be killed because of the weather or whatever the case be. Those pilgrims were, were like migrants, you know, just regular old people who were servants and stuff. They loaded up them ships with them. Then when they get over here and what Columbus finds out, how the Indians are living and about tobacco and take some of that tobacco back over there and they smoke it. Oh, shoot. We got to have some of this. So now they come over, try to bargain with the Indian. Now we don't want that. So guess what? The first German war, first German warfare starts with the Indians. They give the Indians a bunch of small plot, a bunch of blankets that are affected with smallpox as a gift. The Indians say, Oh, cool. Then they start dying. Don't know why they're dying, but they know that, it has didn't start till the white men came. So they start getting off their lands and moving them farther away from the white people. So white people come in to occupy those lands, and that's how it got started with removing them at, at such an early, early, early tough point in line. And Columbus was killing them and everything else. I mean, it was a very violent time for people, and that same thing's been going on. And when I was kind of giving some classes at Illinois College, I was telling you about earlier, I would teach them things like, okay, we're, we're brought up to know our forefathers and all the great things they did to get this country to where it is. But I said, okay. I said, how do we feel about Hitler? And they go, Hitler was a bad person. You know, he was trying to take over the world. He did this to the Jews and all this stuff. I said, okay. What did Thomas Jefferson have? Did he have slaves? What about Washington? I said, what about the Indian Removal Act? What about the Chinese Removal Act? You know, what about when we were going to fight Germany? We were in the war with Germany. They didn't, they didn't round up all the Germans, but they went around with paperwork making them sign how many they had and this and that. So if they felt they needed to, they're going to wrap them up too. You know, I said, our country, the way they treated the Indians, the way they treated blacks, the way they treated uh, the Portuguese and any of the immigrants came in early is no different than what Hitler and then were doing to the people in their things. So he could make what he wanted to be. I said, so if you want to raise up these guys as our heroes, as, as our founding fathers, you know, we were slaves when they did that stuff. We weren't included in nothing that they, they talked about. As a matter of fact, in the 1700s, slavery was an issue way back then before it even became an issue in the 1800s. They tabled it. No, no, this is causing too much trouble. We're getting ready to go to war against the British. We can't be fighting amongst ourselves over the slavery issue. Mm, leave that alone, you know. Then the war started and it went on. But, you know, they don't teach us that history. They don't tell you how bad Andrew Jackson was, how bad he treated the Creek Indians, that he kept scalps in a jar on his desk when he was a president. You don't, you don't learn any of this stuff unless you go out there and you find it and you learn it yourself, and then you can come back and say, you know what? We didn't get started any different than this people over here, but we're sitting here walking around like da-da-da-da. But, you know, we're still trying to brush everything under the, under the rug back here, you know? How about uh, reparations? Oh, I wasn't alive back then. You know, I didn't do it, and I'm not giving it. Benefit. But to give it to the Japanese. Yes. You know? Yeah, for, they did. For, for the four years they locked them up, they yeah. gave it to them. We did 400 years. Yeah. You know, they didn't give us a doggone thing, you know? And then uh, I, I talked to uh, uh, one of these congressmen who works for one of the congressmen, and I said, I said, I got a, I got a plan about re- how you can reparations, you know? That will, that will help. And I said, you don't have to just do it for blacks. You can do it for poor people or you can do it for white people. I said, all they got to do is have a job. Don't just give the money. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, let's say we take $250,000 and any family has a head of a household or people working that's been established that they've been working, you know, paying their debts, trying to do, but they're not getting any better. 
So let's say we take $250,000. We put that in a bank account for that particular family, all right? They got to be a working family. All right, they got $250,000 in there. They can't take that out, but they can borrow against it. It's called a secure loan. So if they want, if he makes enough money, but he can't get credit because he has no credit established, he can borrow against that $250,000 and buy a house. Maybe it's only going to be one hundred ten, maybe $120,000 house, but if he has enough money to make a payment on it, he can borrow against that and make that payment, okay? Every time he makes a payment off of that $150,000 or $120,000 he borrowed, that goes back into the kitty. Because when you get a secured loan from a bank, it's like saying this. You take $500 to your paycheck, you go up to a bank and say, okay, your banker, uh, I want to get a secured loan using my money as collateral. All right? They'll say, okay, we're going to set this $500 here aside. We're going to give you $500. When you pay me $100 back, $100 goes back in there, so now you got $100. When you pay the $500 back, you got the $500 back in there. All right? So it's like you never lost your money, but guess what? Now you establish credit. Yeah. And once you start establishing that credit on a higher level, now you don't need that. Now you can go out and, and establish credit. And that $250,000 is never getting totally used because before you get more of it and stuff, you, you start paying it back. And so it's a revolving thing. The banks, they're making money like crazy because they're making money off that money that they're giving the loans on. They're making a percentage off it, just like everything else. They make their money off that loan. They're making their money off of that. That money is in turn is also being used by that person to better his life. He's better in his life. His kids are getting educated. They're making more money. That money's going back into the system. It, 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 it It's a no-lose thing. And, and, and the money doesn't have to be regenerated again because every time they pay that money back, it's back in there. And when their child or whoever become the next person in that family or whatever, boom, they can borrow all that whole thing. But see, nobody can ever take the whole amount, and you can't take more than what you can afford. So if you want to buy a car that like this, but you your budget, the bank says, well, you know what? You can't afford that because of the money, but you can buy this over here. That money gives them an opportunity to get some growth, to get some credit in their life, and it's not costing anybody anything. Matter of fact, the, the whole country is, is doing good. Like I said, the bank is making money off of that. The money's regenerating itself because when you pay, you brought 10000 you pay that 10000 back, you're back to $250,000. You know what I'm saying? So, and and the guy who I talked to, he said, Art, right, you know, that would work. That's a good idea. He said, but you know what? You never get it through Congress. You never get it passed through Congress because it, it'll mess up the system of how they do things. Yeah. You know? Yes. Disruptive. Yeah. Disruptive. Mm-hmm. Mr. Art Wilson, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast with us. How can where where are, where are you where are the locations located? At um, the locations of the Underground Railroad houses are in Jacksonville, Illinois. Mm-hmm. All of them, but one. The other one is like just three miles uh, east of Jacksonville, and that's Woodlawn Farm, the one we own. But it's it's very easy to find. There's a map in here, and uh, you can get directions from the website also, uh, which I can tell you what that Do you is. Know like, the website, okay? yeah. Uh, the website is a uh, www.woodlawn, that's W-O-O-D-L-A-W-N, woodlawnfarm.com. If people wanted to get a hold of you, how could they do that? Um, they could either get a hold of me through the website or they can call me. I can give my number out and they can have that because I, I have it on my cards and stuff anyway. And if you want to personally get in contact with me, I give lectures and uh, stuff too. Uh, it's 217-299-6017. And I'm available just about any time, uh, you know, to take a phone call and stuff also. Again, it was a pleasure having you on. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with? 
just uh, just this um, there's so much about our history as blacks uh, that we have not had an opportunity to be taught. We tend to learn what they they care to teach us or have the time to, and we just let that be it. And that's why we're so unknowledgeable about things and make decisions not based on who we are as a race, but as our own individual needs. And a lot of times that's self-defeating as a people. So uh, find out, even if it's your own family roots, they're important. They'll give you a start on the rest of life and how you should look at things. So that's what I'd leave them with. Educate yourself. Definitely. That was Mr. Art Wilson. And this is Intentional Dangerfield.